part one ended with Baylor defeating Damon Blackfire during the famous joust at the wedding tourney that saw Princess Daenerys Targaryen, sister to King Daron II the Good, marry Prince Maron Martell, ruler of Dorne, and earning him the name Breakspear. This would have been a disappointing moment for those who hated Dorne and didn't want to see them join the realm, as well as for fans of Damon Blackfire who didn't want to see him lose. Had Damon won, it might have struck a blow for those with anti-Dornish sentiments. He was sort of the champion of that attitude as well as other things. As it turned out, for Baylor himself, it was a huge win. Daenerys was his aunt, Maron Martell his uncle. His very person represented the new peace. The Seven Kingdoms at last joined with Dorn as they were in his bloodlines. His father Daron and grandfather slash namesake, Baylor the Blessed, forged the peace but Baylor Breakspear was the physical embodiment of it. He was the produce of those marriages, those arrangements. In many ways, he was the future. A new look for House Targaryen, one that physically actually looks more Westerosi, seems appropriate in a sense for a newly united Seven Kingdoms. All the more perfect then that his defeated opponent, Damon Blackfire, was, to the eyes of many, the perfect Targaryen, despite not technically being one thanks to his birth, Despite that technicality, though, he represented the old ways in many ways. Harkening back to the time when there were dragons, when Dorne was an enemy, a state of affairs that had lasted much longer than the time of dragons in Westeros, if we're counting. By beating Damon in front of so many, he showed that future. Damon, lying defeated in the dust like the dreams of those who wanted to keep the status quo. They saw that slipping away. I wonder how much Baylor felt the weight of all this. Did he feel that pressure while jousting? Was his victory more than symbolic? And did he realize that at the time? Did he think to himself, I can't let the realm see that we are weak, that we aren't capable of manifesting the stream of peace. It's a lot of weight to have on your shoulders, but he carried it, assuming he <laughs> felt it in the first place. There's a certain irony in a show of strength as a means to keep peace. Don't get violent, or so will we. But that's just how much of Earth and Westeros history has played out, if we're being honest. Sometimes you can only keep the bad guys in line by convincing them that they'll lose if they try it. And sometimes you have to join a trial of seven to defend a hedge knight because you think it's the right thing to do, even when your nephew is the bad guy. But that's, of course, much later. The end of this episode will deal with that incident. It's long after he had convinced everyone he was the real deal. By that point, he was well-established. At this point, he's just getting there. Earlier on, those who might have thought him weak because he was half Dornish, son of the very non-martial Daron the Good, those who thought maybe Baylor's reputation was undeserved, a product of royal propaganda rather than true ability, well, they learned how wrong they were when they saw that joust, or at least heard about the result of it. A lot of witnesses to the tourney would have left with a new impression. Some of those who plotted against the throne would realize, well, this might be harder than we thought. Not that it stopped them, but going up against Daron's new peaceful pro-Dornish regime meant going up against Baylor. Baylor Breakspear. In part one, we covered the first 17 years of his life. Here in part two, we got the second half, which spans another 22 years. It should be a bit longer. It's a larger document, but hey, a lot of people often do more things in their adult life than their youth. Those years coincide as well with some of the most compelling times in Westeros history. So we've got all that and more on this episode of History of Westeros podcast. Hello and welcome, everyone. It's time for part two of a very compelling and interesting and heartfelt story of Baylor Breakspear. Sean, you've got a little something in common with, 
or at least you could be. You could have something in common with Baylor here. And you have something in common with one of the important knights, Humphrey Harding, who fought after breaking his leg. Sean had leg surgery, knee surgery on his birthday this mm-hmm. week, this past week, yet he's mm-hmm. here. Four days ago. Despite all that. So we, we praise your toughness there, Sean, and hope your recovery is, is going smoothly. Mostly here. Bear with me if I <laughs> blank out or fidget or something. <laughs> You're on, a, got a little painkiller than you there? Yeah, so, so the mix of pain and painkillers has got me a little mm. uneasy. A little well, bit like Greg Orkane today then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason I said you could be like one of the characters is because right now you're not dancing, Sean. Dancing is difficult on one leg. But if you were wielding, if you're fighting in a joust with an injured leg, you could be lancing, Sean. <laughs> oh, it's only one letter off. Yes. Yeah, Lansing Sean. I can't believe I never thought about all these jousts. I know. I just it just came to me like an hour ago. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hmm. All the rest of you should feel a failure for not thinking of that first. Also, <laughs> we're all failures. Chat liked your shirt too, Sean. Denver. Yes, oh, that's right. First time ever national champion Denver Nuggets. Nuggets is. I don't follow basketball. I'm I'm glad your team won, but Nuggets is a particularly great name for a team. <laughs> I'm noticing it's like something like some, some animal, some statuesque, powerful animal or something like that. But no, Nuggets. <laughs> I love it. I don't want to diverge too much into basketball, but for you, Aziz, or anyone else who doesn't follow basketball particularly, the Nuggets have this player, Jokic. They call him the Joker, and he's breaking 50-year-old records. Magic Johnson said he's on par with LeBron and Michael Jordan for changing the game, like to give you an idea of how incredible he is. It's awesome to see him win the championship. That explains why the chat also said Joker gang, Joker gang, Uh, Joker gang. I didn't see the connection. (laughs) By the way, the name Magic Johnson is also just... (laughs) It says a lot, doesn't it? Like, this guy has a high opinion of his junk. (laughs) My Johnson is magical. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Shout out to our good friend Nina, who is a particular fan of this character in this time period, as am I. She added a lot of great notes to this one, as she so often does. And I want to point you, as I so often do, to her blog. She takes a lot of great questions on A Song of Ice and Fire. I've pointed out that many times. But she also takes questions on certain historical periods. In this case, Henry VIII. She got a question about Anne of Cleves, because Henry VIII is a favorite of hers. She knows a lot about him. Henry VIII is the number one parallel to Aegon the Unworthy. So you would recognize a lot of his attitudes and character in Aegon if you weren't too familiar with Henry VIII. So check that out, goodqueenally1l.tumblr.com, and check out what she has to say there. I'm way behind. I apologize, everybody, but I'm way behind in going through the, the chats from our past few episodes. But I did look at last week's Baylor episode, and Mrs. Sir Duncan the Tall asked who my favorite Targaryen was, hmm. or, or, or where Baylor ranked among my Targaryens, actually. Okay. And so uh, I was thinking about that for a minute. My, my instinct was like, number one, I'm pretty sure number one. I was like, well... Egg, maybe. Uh, Aemon. Egg. John. Wait, which Aemon? Aemon, Maester Aemon, you mean, right? Ma- yes, okay, yes. Yeah. yeah, it could have been the dragon. He might be number one. Baylor might be number two. That's John's cool. number three. That's what I think. Right on. Okay. I like it. I, I haven't picked a favorite myself. I'll think about that. This episode was voted on by patrons. Of course, they voted for it a couple of weeks ago. It did turn into two, two episodes as we, well, at least, as at least one person predicted correctly. <laughs> Next week, the voters have chosen Pentos. 
stay tuned till the end to hear what Pentos defeated in the poll to make its way into our episode queue. As well as I'll have suggestions for more episodes that are related to this current topic and the answer to this trivia question, which is forthcoming right now. The Lord of Blacktide in the Iron Islands was also a Baylor. I say was because Euron cut him into seven pieces. Kind of an interesting guy. He was raised as a hostage at the High Tower, which is why he turned to the Faith of the Seven, which is why Euron cut him into seven pieces specifically. The question is, though, what's the name of his ship? Hint, it's a reference to one of George R. R. Martin's other works. Mm, that might ring a bell for some of you. It may enable you to guess otherwise. But the answer at the end. So Baylor, from age 17 to 25, that is the ages from the tournament where he earned his nickname until the Blackfire Rebellion. It was, of course, the major event of the end of the second century AC, the Blackfire Rebellion, but it was a full eight years after the marriage and tourney before it actually broke out. In that time, of course, the groundwork was laid while his father's reign continued to reshape the realm, which continued to upset those who didn't like the way these changes were progressing, especially because they just kept coming. Maybe some thought the pace of change would slow down or things would maybe settle, but no, change kept happening. Here's a quick quote from Sir Eustace Osgray from Sworn Sword, our go-to bitter blackfire. Daron bore the same name as the young dragon, but when his Dornish wife gave him a son, he named the child Baylor after the feeblest king who ever sat the Iron Throne. You can see the anti-Dornish. You wouldn't mention the race of the queen or the wife if it wasn't a problem. But he's like, Dornish. You almost hear him like sneering as his Dornish wife gave him a son. He named the child Baylor after the feeblest king. I was like, oof, you are bitter, aren't you? <laughs> that feeble king who walked across the desert barefoot. Yeah, that feeble, feeble? King, the one that like went into this snake pit and came out. Like, okay, yeah. Doesn't sound so feeble, does he? <laughs> Peaceful, yeah. But pe- feeble? No, no, not feeble. <laughs> Yeah, but his name, you could, but th- that's the point though. His name said a lot. Like it actually mattered. Even his name was offensive to some people. They found everything to like pick at the things they didn't like about the other side. And it just, yeah, it really stuck in his craw. Even your name is offensive to me. Damn it. <laughs> so just as he physically represented the realm in his look and his bloodlines, also his name. But let's talk more about the appearance because that is maybe even more notable. The thing that, that stands out. We talked about the Dornish-Targaryen connection, how that's embodied within him. But it's not just that he looked Dornish. It's that he looked different than literally every other Targaryen king who had actually sat the throne to this point. And most Targaryens, period. So it wasn't just looking Dornish. It was, it was not looking Targaryen. So there's this kind of a double whammy in that sense. Of course, he never actually ascended the throne, but it, it really looked like he would for a variety of reasons. He didn't really look Targaryen even a little bit. And he was clean-shaven. Not super unusual, but not common. More Targaryens and just Westerosi in general men would have beards than not. Makar, his younger brother, had a silver hair and full beard, silver beard thing going. So even his younger brother looked like that. Now, Daron II was also beardless. So was Viserys II. And so was Daron I, but Daron I was you know, 14 to 18. So maybe he didn't, maybe he couldn't grow a beard. I'm not sure about that. Nina says also that he was very fastidious. You know, he was a military, efficient military commander. So it may have been more of a, an intentional thing. 
but all of our early Targaryen kings had beards. Even Baylor the Blessed had a beard. Aegon the Unworthy had a beard. Nina says ba- Aegon the Unworthy's beard might be the reason they were trying to look different because Aegon grew his beard to conceal his his jowls. His over he was so overweight that the beard was actually like a way to conceal some of that. So Nina suggests this is kind of a metaphor for his reign. <laughs> and they were trying to distance themselves from that, both that attitude, that look, and just that everything, anything that reminded them of them. So they went the opposite. They didn't use his crown. They didn't use his look. And they didn't have his attitudes of excess and lots of other things. Lots of things to be different. And of course, this was yet another complaint against Baylor, as we said there that in that quote. Meanwhile, Damon had a warrior's name. Right, he's related to Damon, uh, Rider of Caraxes, and Damon Valarian, who was Aegon the Conqueror's first master of ships, who died in battle. Like, there's been several famous warrior Damons, whereas the only Baylor we've heard about at all was the peaceful king, as we as we say, not feeble, but still peaceful, which some people associate with weakness. But he looked like a warrior. That helped a lot. He had that twice broken nose, which, you know, that's the thing that we don't know when he got his nose broken, but it was fighting, right? It was in tournaments or or battle or something. But, you know, you don't, that that helps make you look like a warrior. You have some battle scars. It's a type of scar, basically. It might have been a knitting accident. (laughs) Knitting accident. (laughs) He was always knitting while climbing stairs and, you know, he's not paying attention to where he's going, you know. So this next section is called the United Kingdom of Westeros. The UK of Westeros, that's right. In part because Westeros is shaped like (laughs) the UK turned around, yeah. But though it's still called the Seven Kingdoms, even with Dorne added to it, that's a topic for another time why the the number didn't change and why it really wasn't seven in the first place. But yeah, like I said, story for another time. (laughs) Dorne was added to it, meaning everything not north of the wall was now under the authority of the Iron Throne. This is a gigantic change. Right? It's a huge difference. Dorne had been an independent nation since the time of Nymeria's conquest. Prior to her coming, it had been a mass of shifting independent kingdoms, much like the rest of Westeros was or had been at various times. Now, this was later in that era, so it wasn't like a hundred kingdoms. The more powerful houses had established themselves. It was more like six kingdoms, maybe. If, if we go by how many kings Nymeria sent to the wall in golden fetters anyway, it was six. So that's a, a good number to, to rest on. And as an aside, we've never really focused on how Dorne felt that being brought, brought into the realm. Like we've talked about it from the Westerosi perspective and how all these marcher lords hated it and some of them were for it. But we never talked about like how the Dornish felt about it. As well as we do with Westeros, it wouldn't be a monolith. Some of them would be cool with it. Some of them would be very happy with it. Some of them would hate it. Same ones, you could look at some of the same circumstances to decide and figure out who, who hated it. The ones on the border probably hated it. They're the ones that had, their identity was so established via warring with the people on the other side of that border. Just like the marcher lords didn't like seeing Dorne as an ally, well, the Dornish people on that side probably felt similarly. But not all of them. Some of them were probably like, finally, we're done with this crap. <laughs> we, can, mm-hmm. we can, like, I can farm now and not worry as much about someone coming in and burning my farm. At least if they do, it'll be a Dornish person. And, which isn't better, but, you know, it's less likely to happen. So, like, for example, the Ironwoods. Good chance the Ironwoods didn't like it. The Ironwoods are on the border there. They've already, they already resent the Martells for being more powerful than them. And this was a step up for the Martells to be even more powerful than them. So the distance between the two houses got bigger. A lot of potential resentment there. The, Mar- the Ironwoods still call themselves the Blood Royal. It's like their, their lord is called the Blood Royal. Like, that's... 
that's pretty <laughs> pretty bold, you know. <laughs> it may be pretty bold, but it also reminds me of the I don't know, is that a Taiwan quote? It's like if you have to tell people that you're the king, you're not really the king. <laughs> yeah. And so we're not positive, but the Ironwoods probably fought for the Blackfires in the first Blackfire Rebellion. They definitely fought for them in some of the others, but probably the first as well. Of course, a big problem here would be prejudice on both sides, right? It's not just losing their place in the world, saying our identity was in as as warriors on the border. But after so long being warriors on the border, yeah, they have hatred towards that other side. So it's not a thing you can erase overnight, having this like, we hate the Dornish or we hate the marchers. So that's a problem, but it's a a worthy problem to tackle, one that if, if tackled well in the long term, creates a lot of peace. And we can fast forward to Song of Ice and Fire. The marchers and the Ironwoods and they said these houses don't love each other, but it's no it's nowhere near as bitter as it used to be. So there has been a lot of progress, even though it's maybe not quick progress, but hey, thousands of years of history takes a long time to undo. So, yeah. Yeah, that type of thing, you're talking generations, yeah. you know. Like I think about that a lot in the real world. It doesn't matter what two politicians in some other country got together and decided, "Okay, we're at peace now." You killed my uncle last week. Yeah. You know what I mean? The person on the ground in that village wants revenge for the, the, the actual violence exacted on them in recent times. That doesn't go away because some politicians steal. You know? Yeah, you're right. It gives them a reason to not do it. It, it gives them an, a penalty for continuing the violence. It doesn't make them stop hating the other side, though. That's, yeah. That it takes longer. That is a, you're right. A lot of times it takes multiple generations for them to get over. People who didn't, have, didn't directly suffer at the hands of those that they're now told to be peaceful with. Yeah. But there wasn't, it it would be wrong to say that racism, prejudice, things like that are the only reasons for animosity here. Dorn, as part of the peace deal, wasn't given the same laws and restrictions imposed on them like the rest Soros. So the Starks, the Baratheons, the Tullys, they had stricter rules more taxes, things like that, than Dorne. And that, of course, you can see why that would be a thing that makes them chafe and say, well, why do they have to pay less? Why? And, and they get to still be called the Prince of Dorne, you know? They're, it's not, a, they didn't lose their title, right? A Dornish person might be able to say, look, y'all, the reason we get these so-called concessions is because Aegon and his sisters conquered you failed to conquer us. In fact, you people failed to conquer us repeatedly. Yeah, we don't have to give up as much as you did. We were invited to join and we accepted. We weren't forced. We didn't lose. <laughs> you know, that's not ex- maybe not the nicest thing to say. <laughs> Why not make them feel better? <laughs> but sitting back like we can do and, and we're not involved personally, we're like, yeah, that is kind of true, isn't it? <laughs> but you could also see why that would maybe not be great to have this imbalance of laws. Neen also points out Daron II didn't get full buy-in from his vassals making this arrangement. It was kind of a, we're doing this and you're going to like it. Of course, it started before him, Baylor and et cetera, but there was plenty that just didn't like it. And these were powerful people who didn't like it. And that's part of where we get to the Blackfire Rebellion, you know, eight years later or so. Now, not to mention, though, there's even more favors. First of all, you get the, the, the tax write-offs, the the title gets to be kept in place. But also there's just more favors implied. You're married to the king. 
you just you got to figure the king's going to give some favors to his own family. And so they, that's just implied that they're going to get even more benefits from this arrangement, ones that aren't necessarily written down or quantified, but it's clearly there because this is your, your in-laws, right? Some might have even seen it as more of a dual monarchy rather than one kingdom subject to another, and that would have enhanced the bad feelings. And hard to say they're entirely wrong. Like, Dorne was allowed to operate independently in a lot of, in a lot of ways. So throughout all this, what did Daylord do? Daylord's got a lot of new responsibilities. He sees this as part him. He's part Dornish. He's the bridge for a lot of this. I would think, given the way we see him act, given the way we see him behave later, he wouldn't descend into factionalism. In fact, he would probably try to do the opposite. He would probably try to avoid factionalizing and try to constantly reach out to the other side. He would obviously still be associated with the Dornish side of things. That's his family. And his in-laws were Dondarians who were Marcher House. Maybe the only marcher house in his corner, though. The others might have still been upset with the arrangement. Maybe they looked down on the Dundarians as well. A lot of unanswered questions in terms of who felt what about who. But it's, it's, a, it's a really excellent setup. Another thing Garon did to denote the piece, to try to enshrine it, to make it more physical, to make it more permanent, was the building of Summerhall. The site was chosen with a lot of intent. It's right near the border of Dorne, the Stormlands, and the Reach. There's actually a little area where the, the realms actually come together. And it makes it a little of a unique spot. Now, of course, it's in ruins, which is, which is symbolic in another way. But it's a, it's a sensible place to, to meet. And we'll see later how that comes into play. The piece was a great achievement, so commemorating it is, makes sense to do that. It also said, signals that this is something he expected to last, something semi-permanent, if not actual permanent. And it's not a castle. It's not a def- what's really important is it's not a fortress. And that's intentional and important. It's not a military installment, because if you're building a base here, that doesn't scream peace, does it? That sounds like, it sounds like the opposite, really. But this is a palace. It's called Summerhall, right? It's the opposite of winter. It's a nice place. It's not, a ca- it's not defensible hardly at all you wouldn't expect it to be used as a military place. The location is important strategically, but it's not a fort. So he almost intentionally took a military location and made it peaceful as part of the symbol, which I think is pretty cool and clever for George as writing as well. Kind of like how Castle Black is in defense. You can't defend Castle Black from the south. Like if the Starks attack Castle Black, it's doomed. It's built to defend from something coming from the north. Summer Hall's like that, except... All directions. <laughs> there, no direction is well fortified there. It definitely. I, I also like that idea. It's a on multiple levels. It's really good. You get to have a much more efficient and maybe cheap palace built when you're not worried about military fortifications, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to have this extra staff and food and armaments and stuff. And then once you establish it being that way, it's also this signal like. Why would you attack this? Like, clearly, this is here for peace's sake. Yeah. It's, it's something we can share. It's something we can grow around. And yeah, it is extra symbolic for it to burn down. That so. would maybe <laughs> be why they would attack it, not as a military target, but, but they just to show their contempt for the peace or for what it stands for. Not because it has yeah. a military... Yeah, not as a military But target. for them to do that, it's extra symbolic, too. It's yes. sort of like declaring war. Yes. You can't... You know, it's, like, it's no small thing if you attack this. Yeah, it's, you're right. Everyone would, would understand what's being attacked. It's not Summer Hall so much as it is the peace. So technically, the prince of, the crown prince is always the prince of Dragonstone. That's been a tradition for a long time, still is. 
and Baylor was Prince of Dragonstone. But with Summerhall out there, the Targaryens had options. At least one Prince of Dragonstone preferred Summerhall. We don't know how Baylor was with it. Makar spent a lot of time there even before he was Prince of Dragonstone. And Daron the Drunkard is the one I'm referring to, Makar's son, who was Prince of Dragonstone for a long time, but he preferred Summerhall. And Rhaegar preferred the ruins of Summerhall to Dragonstone. So <laughs> that's another crown prince who preferred Summerhall, but not quite the same context. We mentioned last time that at some point, Baylor got betrothed to Jenna Dondarrion. Within a couple of years of being married, Valar would have been born. Valar Targaryen, the young prince, who looked a little more Targaryen than his father. He had a silver streak in his hair. He had light blonde hair or light brown hair with a silver streak, a little like Darkstar maybe. Darkstar's hair is more black with the silver streak, if I, if I remember correctly. But he's the only other person I, I can think of that has that silver streak. Oh, that's not true. There's one of the... Reyna. Elena, that's right. Elena is the other one with the streak, but it is silver and gold, not, not silver and black or brown. Right. Yeah, two different colors. Cool. And Valar also has blue eyes, which is not necessarily Targaryen, but it's closer to the purple than Baylor's brown eyes. It just like Aegon in the main novels has blue eyes, and the blue hair makes his eyes pop more, which is maybe a way to make them look less purple. Or, but it's what it said is it's a way to honor his Tyrashi mother, his Ty, which is maybe an in joke. The fact that all black fires were mothered by Rohan of Tyrosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of interesting that he looks more Targaryen than his father. You wonder if that was like a, they thought, saw that as a good thing. Like eventually the realm will be in his hands. Someone who kind of is the physical embodiment of both sides, maybe. Not really clear. And then Mataris would have been born. We have no idea when Mataris was born. Valar's age is a little clearer, but it seems like Mataris was pretty close in, to Valar's age. His nickname was the Even Younger Prince. So the Young Prince and the Even Younger Prince. He also may have had a similar look, but we don't know what he looked like at all. We don't know if he had the streak or brown hair or silver hair. Completely unknown. But these names, Valar and Mataris, never had names like that before. Completely new. These are different styles. So not only do we have this new world of Targaryen-Dornish merging, it comes with new names. I, I think that's a sign of the new culture. Nina says... Mataris is similar to the Valyrian city Mantaris. It's just one N away. And there's a Valarian named Monteris, which is also kind of close, but definitely not the same. You can kind of maybe see the origin there. It's a little bit Valyrian, but it's clearly not Targaryen. So they may have been trying to pick something that sounds Valyrian, but is distinctly not Targaryen as a way to denote the change within the dynasty, which is really great detail. I love that. This is part of it. And Valar, by the way, if you're not clear, it's not spelled like Valar Doharius or Valar Reredus. <laughs> it's two R's in the Valar, which is, yeah, a little interesting. Kind of like the name Visera, which has two R's, which is a little uncommon to see the Targaryen names not end in uh, like an S. So many of them end in S <laughs> or N, you know? especially S. Rhaegar is a little different. So I would have really liked to see it, and we've never actually seen it, but consider how a lot of houses mash their two sigils up when they're showing their heritage. Sometimes they quarter it, but sometimes they make a, a combination sigil. Like Bittersteels is so cool with the horse breathing fire and having wings. That one's one of my favorites. 
Imagine this. Stannis is pretty cool. Stannis is really cool too. <laughs> I agree. But imagine the sweet dual heritage you get from Dondarrion's purple lightning and a dragon. Like that's awesome. You could have the purple lightning behind it, like framing it, or like shooting out of their eyes or out of their mouth. Like, which dragon is it in D and D? The blue dragons, the breathe lightning, right? That's their yeah. It's the blue dragons, the breathe lightning. And so it just reminds me of stuff like that. And purple, it's purple lightning too. It's purple for Targaryens. It's, it's, it fits so well. Someone draw that. <laughs> <laughs> so and as we get closer to the rebellion in the timeline, it becomes all the more important to check in with where things stood with regard to loyalties within the House of the Dragon. I'm, I'm glad I can use that phrase, House of the Dragon, to represent multiple families under one umbrella because it's not just Targaryen we're talking about anymore. In other words, who seemed to stand where as the divisions grew? Early on, of course, the Reds faction, it wouldn't have been called that yet, but they're on, of course. Baylor, Ares, Rhaegel, Makar, and Bloodraven. Now, Ares and Rhaegel weren't around a whole lot. They were, Rhaegel wasn't all there mentally. Ares was reading books. But Makar and Baylor were warriors. Bloodraven was a hardliner and a warrior and, and hyper loyal. He, at some point, got Raven's teeth and Dark Sister more on that in a minute. Nina points out, of course, Queen Mariah Martell as well, and maybe some other Dornish nobility that would have been around at, at her court. She would have maybe had ladies-in-waiting from amongst the nobility, and their families would be on the red side. Certainly, you wouldn't have ladies-in-waiting from families whose loyalty is not very solid. So there's a lot of room for just some, some, some unknowns that would have been around that aren't named by the history books, but that still could have been pretty important. And even if they weren't important, just their presence would tell us a lot about who stood where. On the black side, Damon and Agor, of course. Dana the Defiant, if she was still around, that's a big open question as to when she, was, when she died. But by this time, let's not forget, young Aegon and Aemon, the Damon's twins. And then Damon II, who, of course, wouldn't have been called Damon II. He would have been, I don't know, Damon Jr. <laughs> they don't use that term in Westeros, but young Damon. Little Damon. Yeah, little Damon. <laughs> little Damon. <laughs> Plenty of gold chains Damon. for their Valyrian steel chains. Okay. What's that? Damon. Damon. Like with an I N. M I N. He's little Damon. <laughs> Day Max and Damon. Yeah, Damon. Max and Damon. Yeah. He was born in 189, two years after the wedding tournament. So he would have been nine years old when the Black Fire Band broke out. So old enough to have been aware of a lot of goings on and maybe started to have dreams as well. More on that later, too. Little Damon is a much better nickname than even younger Prince. <laughs> 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 Even Younger Prince is not the most creative nickname, although it is funny. It doesn't roll off the tongue very well. I mean, it's... <laughs> EYP, even that's like hard to say properly. Even the acronym <laughs> isn't great. <laughs> Damon also had four other sons and at least two daughters, most of whom had to have been born before 196 or, or maybe if not all of them because Bittersteel grabbed them all and fled overseas with them after the war, after the Redgrass Field. And of course, Damon wasn't having more kids after he died unless Rohan was pregnant. So at most, one more child could have been born. So she was probably at court as well, if not back at their keep constantly popping out children because that was quite a schedule of <laughs> having children. Seven, nine children in between their marriage in the year like 186 or 185. So it's a lot of kids. And, and even if Damon hadn't been planning on rebelling, because we, we, we hear he was, you know, gradually convinced to do it. It wasn't something that he just, like, wanted to do, but held back for a long time. So early on, you might have been hearing comparisons, though, 
like comparing the family of Baylor to the family of Damon. And like, oh, Damon's got more sons. He's more of a man. You know, this kind of silliness that, that comes out sometimes. But it probably happened, right? Because we know that is a thing that, that Westerosi men judge themselves by, <laughs> even though it's really has a lot more to do with the woman, you know? But regardless, that sort of talk probably happened. Elena, Reina, as well. We wonder about them. Reina would have probably been for peace. That seems pretty straightforward. She was a septa. She was very pious. So I don't know about taking sides. In terms of factions, she would take sides with the idea of peace, I think. That's one of the safer bets we have here. But there's a chance she preferred her trueborn family because the seven teaches that bastards are, you know, bad news. It teaches they're born of lust and envy and things like that. So she may have believed in that bit of, you know, seven-rooted propaganda. Uh, Elena as well, not pious, but she was master of coin for Daron II later, and she married a Dornishman for love later. So she wasn't later. There's nothing that indicates she was ever on that side of things, and plenty to indicate she was on her family's side. Also, Eustace Osgray, Nina points out, complains about women whispering in, in Daron's ear. This is very probably one of the women he was referring to because she was a power behind the throne, a very influential woman who didn't officially have a seat at the council, but was, as we said, basically the master of point, de facto master of point. Made the decisions, but didn't have the title. Now, how old was Valar? We guessed about how old Damon Jr. was, Damon, but Valar was probably around 20 in the Hedge Knight, maybe a couple years older, but he couldn't have been too much older. So he could have been old enough to be a squire during the red grass field. So he could have been, he might have even been at his father's side. It wouldn't necessarily have been mentioned. Like squires don't get a lot of attention necessarily, especially if nothing happens to them. But very possibly. And someone like Baylor, like Jamie, think about Jamie having, like, he's like, I got more squires than I can shake a stick at. Like, what do I need? This is just a thing. You just, nobles who are good at fighting as a point of, Alliance is a point of pride. You just get squires thrown at you. And, and Baylor, Breakspear, being who he was, he had to have just gotten a ton of offers to squire youngsters. But his own son, his own heir, obviously he's got the inside track, <laughs> you know? <laughs> they may have thought it better to have him learn from somebody else, but surely he, you know, from his father seems very likely. And which would be interesting, putting him around the same age as maybe as... as twins, Aegon and Aemon, maybe a little younger than them, which means he may have trained with them, which is a normal thing to do as well because Baylor and Daemon trained together. Maybe it's a way to make them be friends and keep them from having animosity later. The same thing we see in the Dance of the Dragons. It didn't work out there. The, the children of Rhaenyra and the children of Alicent had to be kept separate, but that's why you try to put them together. It's why you try to make that work so that it doesn't descend into that level of animosity that eventually leads to war. And of course, there's people outside the family that we should keep stock of. Other people around the Red Keep, like we said, maybe Mariah's ladies-in-waiting would be a good example. But also, Fireball, the Red Keep's master-at-arms. We mentioned him a few times. The Kingsguard. The Kingsguard would be buddy-buddy with guys like Baylor and Damon, and they'd also have their duties to attend to. They would have their personal loyalties and preferences, but they all, that would be weighed against their duties, which, of course, as a Kingsguard, is a really interesting subtopic. And some of these guys may have had real qualms based on how the rebellion broke out and who took what side. As far as we know, all the Kingsguard stayed loyal. None of them went to Daemon. But 
they may have felt bad about that. <laughs> you know, they may have, well, I'm sure they didn't feel good about it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> think about Rhaegar and how he was really close with some of the Kingsguard. They were really tight with him. Now, part of that is because there was real animosity between him and his father and there was a need to take sides well before anything happened. Whereas that may not have been the case here. We don't know how much factionalizing happened ahead of time. But it seems likely some of the King's Guard would have thought Damon was the better man, <laughs> even though Baylor was so brave. Do we know who the different small council members were at that time? We only know one or two. One of them was Lord Butterwell, the same Lord Butterwell from the Mystery Night, the one who tried to run the Blackfire wedding. <laughs> Not rebellion, <laughs> but the brown. Which wedding. is interesting because. We know that Daron, when he took over, he fired all his father's small counselors. And one of them was this Butterwell. Butterwell was Master Coin. So for some reason, he, was, he undid that and brought him back at a higher rank as Hand of the King. So it was, Nina's suggestion is that this was like a concession for balance within these political factions that were emerging. It's like, okay, well, we need to show a little bit of, give a little bit of power to someone here who's kind of on the other side of things and show that we can all work together. That's where it didn't work out. But we have, it's a big curiosity why it even happened in the first place, given that he fired all his other father's counselors for being so corrupt. So for some reason, he brought this guy back. Bloodraven, though, is the biggest question mark I have here in the second half. We really wondered how much, how well Damon and Baylor got along, and I still wonder about that. But in the second half, Bloodraven's the one I, wor- I wonder about. Because in terms of his relationship with Baylor, Brendan had the opposite sort of reputation. Like he was a hardliner and not considered chivalrous and not considered like a good man. He was someone to fear, someone to respect for his capabilities and capacities, but everyone was afraid of him. He was a rule through fear, not through love kind of guy. As much as we like him, yeah, there's a lot of aspects about him that were problematic and Baylor probably would have seen it, some of those things that way. He's like, you know, I don't really like all the way you do, do some of these things here, uncle, because Brendan was his uncle. But he had to respect just how loyal he was to his father. One thing Bloodraven was not was disloyal to the crown. So Baylor had to, he could count on that, had to respect that much. And I wonder, here we go with the Raven's Teeth. Like what happened with this? The Raven's Teeth existed before the Battle of the Redgrass Field. Of course, they were critical during it. How did this come to be that he had this large private guard of like 300 dudes with bows and well, like the money for that had to come from the crown. Bloodraven didn't have lands of his own. So Bloodraven must have done some very important things to show his loyalty. And what did Baylor think about his uncle having such a large private guard? He must have, I assume he was cool with it, that he weighed in on it and he trusted his trusted his uncle just as much as his father did. And, and that trust was rewarded, at least in terms of what side he stayed on, maybe not in terms of all of his actions. For example, at the Redgrass Field, what would he think of Bloodraven shooting down Damon and his sons with arrows? Damon, you know, I mean, that's fair, I guess. He's a warrior, he's an adult, you know, but shooting down the two twin sons, I don't know about that. He might have had real qualms about that. That's not chivalrous, right? You, you know, and maybe he would have preferred even Damon to have been beaten straightforwardly so you could see that his cause was defeated. You know, people that would, Damon became like a folk hero afterwards for the manner of his death and for the promise that would have been. If he had been defeated properly, you know, in, a, in nightly combat instead of from afar, that might have been more emphatic. It might have, staunched the enthusiasm for future rebellions. Like people who said, 
it was the will of the gods. You can't say it's the will of the gods when this old gods-oriented sorceress guy did it. Like, you, it's hard. Like, you can't argue that the gods willed that Damon Blackfire should fall when it doesn't look like the Seven did that. It looks like the old gods or sorcery did it, right? So the manner of his defeat is problematic for a chivalrous, honorable guy. That said, he might not have been defeated otherwise. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But Raven's like, sure, it wasn't chivalric, but we did it. Yeah, <laughs> like this is like, you want the best possible result. This might have been the best possible result. Did you want another Gwaine Corbray getting his face caved in by fighting Damon Blackfire? <laughs> like, what did you want? Did you, I didn't see you rushing to fight him, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Are we going to decommission all the archers in our army now so we yeah. can be chivalric all the time? There's a reason we have the archers, right? Yeah, like, exactly. So I wonder if he, it would go so far as Baylor appreciating Blood Raven, but not really liking him, you know? <laughs> like, I don't really like you, but I respect you. I'm glad you're on our side, you know, that kind of thing. Now, I'm just guessing. This is, this is all very much pulled out of nowhere, just kind of guessing based on their personalities. For all we know, Baylor had nothing whatsoever to say about the manner of, of Aegon and Aemon's deaths via Arrow. Maybe he was like, yeah, good job. <laughs> you know, pro- probably not, right? Given what we know about him, I think we can, I think we can take us a, a make an educated guess here. We also just don't know how much power and influence Blood Raven had in general, whether this was a problem like, oh, now he's done this. His hardline attitudes are going to carry more weight at court because he's now the killer of Damon Blackfire. He's, he's, his esteem has risen. I don't know if I like that. And Dark Sister. Talk about that. He got Dark Sister. And it was before the Battle of the Redgrass Field also. So he had done something to earn it. Maybe before getting the, the raven's teeth or at the same time. Interesting potentials here. I mean, this is the blade of the dragon the blade of Queen Visenya. Didn't have the standing of Blackfire. It was literally smaller. But still, I really find it hard to believe that Daron just gave it to Bloodraven without consulting with his son and heir first. Like, hey, son, do you want Dark Sister? Or should I give it to someone else? Should I give it to Brynden? And here's the reasons why. They maybe talk it out. Baylor would be like, yeah, and the way Baylor is about always wanting other people to get the acclaim. Like, no, you did this. No, you did that. No, we... we it seems almost straightforward that he'd be like, yeah, let's use the sword to bind the rest of the family. Like, we've got better uses for the sword than giving it to me, you know? Especially because I feel strongly, and Nina feels strongly, that part of the reason to give Dark Sister away in the first place was to devalue the gift of Blackfire to Damon to show that it's not such an important sword after all. It's not a kingly sword. Yes, it was wielded by a king, but the king is not the crown. Stop associating the two, y'all. So by giving away Dark Sister away, it kind of show, it kind of shows their attitude towards the swords. I think it's pretty clear. And by giving it away to someone other than the prince further devalues it. Yeah, right? exactly. It's just a sword. It's a family treasure. It's, it's for good warriors, not connected to the line of succession. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that was, if that was their thinking, and I do, uh, it's, a, it's a strong level of headcanon, it's pretty darn clever. It shows the kind of moves Daron was likely to make. Daron's really good at these political moves and symbolic moves that are nonviolent that carry a lot of weight to them. And I, and I think Baylor learned from that. I think he saw this and he had the ability to see it because he was close to his father for so long. They worked together really well. And as we'll see after the Blackfire Rebellion, he works with him even closer as Hand of the King. So if you see, like when you're a king and you know that your son is going to inherit one day, of course, it's like we see Ned work with Rob and countless other lords work closest with their eldest son, the one they want to see inherit. Like when... Randall Tarley worked with Sam, even though he didn't like him. But once he was like, I got an heir I like better, he started working with that one instead. 
And he started working with Dickon instead. and was like, Dickon was by his side for every decision at council, at court, all these things. So Baylor and Daron together, believe it. The actual war, Blackfire Rebellion, the famous moment came when the order to arrest Damon was sent. Bloodraven reported on intrigues going on. He said, look, y'all, they're going to announce a claim within the moon's turn. There's some suspicion here whether that's actually true. Blood Raven may have kicked it off and like, we need to take care of this now. They're not listening to me. We should get the jump on it. So I'm going to fudge the details a little bit, but maybe not. Maybe it's exactly what happened. Maybe it's entirely true. Either way, what did Baylor think? He probably had knowledge of this order being sent to arrest Damon and he would have weighed in. He would have maybe been like, I think this is a mistake or yes, let's do it. I'm, I'm all for it. We, you know, it's a tough choice, but we got to do it. I mean, again, this is a guy who's close to all the decisions. The guy who's going to be appointed hand of the king. So he's at least witness to his father's decision, most likely, if not part of the decision. And Baylor likes to hear people out. Like Baylor was a big believer in justice. We see this in the hedge night. He wanted to hear people's, he wanted to hear both sides of, of an argument. That might be something he was like, well, we should hear from Damon. We should, okay, yeah, seize him, but like may, let him make a statement. I want to hear the evidence. Let's have a trial. That may have been what he called for. Of course, we don't know what would have happened because Damon was warned and got away. Is it possible Baylor is the one who warned him? It, it, well, yes, it's possible. I, I, don't, I don't have any direct evidence of it or even a suggestion of it, but you know, it would be quite a twist if Baylor did it. <laughs> I don't really, I think there's a low percentage chance, but, but I wouldn't say it's like a super unlikely, maybe like a 10% chance. More likely it was what we're told. It was Fireball who helped him escape so Fireball somehow found out about it. Maybe Fireball overheard the decision and ran away to tell them. Maybe it was one of the other Kingsguard. We talked about some of the Kingsguard maybe liking Damon more. If that's the case, they didn't fight for him, though. Maybe that's not a great theory. Either way, someone told, and we don't know who. It could have actually been Daylor himself, which is really interesting. And again, what did he think? We have to come back to what did he think of Damon? Was he like, well, this guy's my friend. He's my, my kin. But that's small fries next to throwing the realm into civil war. So I think he would do its best for the realm, but it would have been a real like human heart and conflict with itself moment if he was actually friends with Damon and respected him or wanted them to like have a future together as friends, which you could see that just falling apart right before his eyes with this evidence, which may not have been evidence. <laughs> it probably was though. Lord Ambrose Butterwell again, the one that, that held the second Blackfire party, he was handed to the king. And he may have been glad to see Baylor preach leniency because Baylor, that's the first thing he did was he preached leniency towards Damon, which is part of why I, I wonder if he was the one that told or if he was friends with him or is like, or if it's just his, let's exhaust all avenues of peace first before we go to war. That to me sounds like the most likely possibility, but it doesn't have to be just one answer. There's a lot of, could be multiple reasons here. He did such a bad job of containing the rebels, Lord Ambrose Butterwell, that is, that he was fired. Some people later suspected him of being too friendly with the blacks. Of course, he did try to start the second Blackfire Rebellion. And when the rebellion started, he sent one son to fight on each side. He was one of those guys like, oh, I'm not taking sides. I'm not taking sides. That seems more likely than, he, than because he lost his land and other stuff. That's why he sided with the blacks eventually. But either way, he was fired and replaced by Lord Hayford. Now, Hayford was a hardcore loyalist. There was no question about him. And I think maybe King Daron maybe felt like, oops, you know, I screwed up. You know, I 
because we just a minute ago we were like, why did he even rehire this guy? Why did he bring Lord Butterwell back as a hand of the king if he fired all his father's counsel for being so corrupt? So he probably was like, whoops, that didn't work out so well. This this guy I brought in failed to contain the Blackfire Rebellion. I wonder if he had like he was just really competent. He was just really good at setting up relationships and keeping track of the books and they when they let him go they realize like crap no one else is that good at this job and he wasn't that corrupt okay uh, yeah you know? that makes sense like a guy who's good at books and numbers but isn't good at war like that that's not a tough yeah. sell at all there's plenty of people like that you know he, he'd be a good peacetime hand and a bad wartime hand yeah that would make sense i could see that i could see that so the attempted arrest of Damon had the effect that outrage often does, especially if it's sold properly to people, which is that it creates sympathy for someone who's actually probably guilty. And that may have been part of Baylor's concern. If he's arguing a counsel for leniency, he might be like, we got to play this carefully or else Damon could gain sympathy. We got to make sure that we're not the bad guys here. We don't, because the last thing we want to do is send more troops into his arms, more people that support him because he was treated unjustly by this Dornish king or this Dornish prince, you know, and whatever. And think about men like, again, Sir Eustace Osgray, our bitter blackfire, he comes back. He seemed to genuinely believe that Daron was a bastard. And it's like, it's hard for us maybe to process that because from where we're sitting, it's, it's kind of a crazy idea. But look what happens with Stannis and the rumors about Cersei and Joffrey, and then they turn around and send rumors about him and, and Felice sleeping with Moonboy, or Solis, not Felice, sleeping with Moonboy. These rumors get somewhat accepted, right? Because people don't know better. They don't have the internet. They don't have DNA tests. They're just, everything is a rumor to them. Nothing is truth when you live in that system. You just have to believe what you can. There's no way to know. The king said, this guy's a bastard. Are we supposed to not believe the king? Well, this king, yeah, because he lies all the time. But well, they, people don't necessarily know that. Like, look what we saw in the Riverlands. There were people that were like, there wasn't like this under King Aerys. Like, the, you mean the mad king? You're like, you want him back? Like, well, he wasn't hurting us. You know, so just, there's a lot of different shoes you have to put yourself in to like frame the perspectives here properly. And just, yeah, because from where we're sitting, yeah, Joffrey Juice, Juice. <laughs> Joffrey, Luke, and Jace, juice. <laughs> or juice and lace. Juice and lace. <laughs> Joffrey, Luke, and Jace are obviously bastards from where we're sitting, but mm, it's a little less obvious in, in world. Marcella, Tom, and Joffrey, the other Joffrey, right? Obviously bastards to us, but in world, not so obvious, right? Same thing here. It's not obvious that Daron's not a bastard. It's not obvious that he's not the son of Aemon the Dragon Knight. So, yeah, it's tricky. Now, again, this wouldn't make Baylor Breakspear a bastard, but it would put his claim below Damon Blackfires. If his, if his father, Daron, was a bastard, and Damon's also a bastard, but Damon's actually a bastard of the king, and Daron isn't, well, then Damon comes first. So from their logic, it's not, it's not really convoluted at all. It just takes this one truth of, well, Daron's a bastard, thus Damon comes before him. It's actually quite simple when you put it that way. And looking Dornish, Baylor looking Dornish wouldn't help, even though we know that's irrelevant. <laughs> but like, if, you're, if you have anti-Dornish sentiment, that just pushes you even farther into Damon's camp. And these are the people. This is one thing I love about Baylor. These are the people Baylor is saying we should go easy on. Yes, they believe lies. Yes, they are against us. But we shouldn't feel bitter towards them. We should still hold out an open hand towards them. We should still try to bring them back into the fold peacefully. 
he's logical and magnanimous, Nina says, about rumors. Like, yes, he doesn't turn bitter. He doesn't hate the people for believing this nonsense about his father and his family. He's like, well, this is how it is. We got to deal with it. You know, I'm the prince. I got to handle this maturely with forward thinking capacity and without taking it personally. This is one of the reasons people like him so much because that, yeah, that's a great, that's a very virtuous way to handle it. It's an honorable way to handle it. It's a way, it's, we could all learn from that, right? <laughs> but the war broke out. Like he preached leniency to Damon, but as things progressed, it was clear that that was not going to do any good, that leniency was counterproductive because this is now a real rebellion. It's not going to stop through peace. It's only going to be stopped through force of arms. And Baylor was deployed south to collect an army of Dornish and Stormlanders. Now, you can understand why he was sent to collect the Dornish army. He's Dornish. <laughs> his mother's Dornish. <laughs> I mean, his wife is a marcher. That, they may not love that part, but still, he's the right call. And of course, going to the Stormlands, well, his wife's a marcher lord. That's the Stormlands. And the Stormlands are in the hands of the Baratheons. The Laughing Storm fought at Baylor's side, at Dunk's side in the Hedge Knight. That's the storm. That's the Lord of Storm's End. He probably wasn't Lord of Storm's End at this point, but his father probably was. It was probably his father. We don't actually know that. But either way, this is close kin, like the Baratheons and Targaryens. They're, you know, they're still pretty close relationship-wise. We also know none of the High Lords supported Daemon. It was only lesser houses that supported Damon. So either way, the Baratheons were reds in the, in the upcoming war. Since the marchers sided with Damon, most of them, or all but the Dundarians, maybe, we don't know, there was probably battles to be fought in the Stormlands too, to settle things, to be like, okay, well, who's loyal, who's not? Once the Stormlands was settled, they can gather the army and start marching. And this may have been part of the delay. As we know, Baylor barely made it to the battle on time. And this is probably why these battles that he had to fight, smaller skirmishes, getting people loyal. And Nina says, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Baylor acted a bit like his eventual great, great, great nephew, Robert Baratheon, in using both his battlefield prowess and his charm to win people over, to win over especially Stormlords in this case. While Baylor would almost certainly have had the support of the Dondarians, it's entirely possible other marcher houses were opposed via ambition or ideology. So Baylor's charm and charisma might have come up big here in bringing over people who were kind of on the fence. There might have been some people that were like, well, yeah, we, we hate the Dornish, but we also aren't rebels. We don't want to just turn on the king. Like, that's a big deal too. So it's not an easily made decision. So he might have won some people over who were on the, on the fence, which is a really powerful thing to be able to do. Like, if you got someone who's on a coin flip might be your enemy, and you, through charm and charisma and just your presence and bearing, are able to bring them to your side. I and mean, that's just a huge thing. It's possible Baylor went to Dorne first, though, because he might have expected a better welcome there. Like, he, sure, the Ironwoods would have been against him and maybe some others, but the majority of the Dornish would probably be on his side for ethnic reasons, for wanting to fight against anti-Dornish sentiment. But they're saying we're not good enough to be a queen? For our people to be queen? Like, outrageous. Let's fight them. You know, of course, some were like, yeah, we don't want to be a part of that realm, so let's join the rebels. <laughs> but as I said, more of the pro-Iron Throne people on the Dornish side, most certainly because of the esteem and their leaders, Sunspear, all that. But 
have to remind ourselves not to treat Dorne as a monolith. There would have been certainly plenty of houses that fought for Damon and the Ironwoods. That might be another reason to go there because they're not a monolith. You can't be sure of how they're going to respond. We need to, we know what the North's going to do. We know what the, you know, the other territories and leaders are more established. Yeah. Right. But Dorne is like, like you said, a coin flip. We got to make sure this coin flips the right way. Uh, yeah. And, and, and before they take sides, like do it, get, help them decide which side of the fence to be on before someone else makes that decision for them, before they decide on their own. Which begs the question, did he go to Dorne first or the Stormlands first? Like if he goes to Dorne first, he can maybe get more help to help in the Stormlands. And I don't know about marching a bunch of Stormlanders into Dorne. That sounds a little more precarious, you know, although it might be necessary. I don't know. A third possibility is he didn't do either. He went to Summerhall and was like, hey, everybody meet me here. You know, like it's a good border spot for people to meet and gather. And they fought their battles on their own. Like the Dornish fought the Ironwoods. And once that was settled, they brought their army north. Same thing happened in the Stormlands. They meet Baylor at Summerhall and march from there. That's the third possibility. I almost think that's the, the most sensible one. But it may have been necessary for optics reasons, for potential for violence reasons for Baylor to go in person to some of these places. Yeah, like Lord Martell himself. Like, Morris Martell wasn't super old at this point. We know his father's the one who arranged for the marriages with, Bear, with Baylor. So he's not a, like, probably not an old man. He may have marched with the troops. He may have been at the Battle of Redgrass Shield. I'm guessing no, but it's possible. And his son, he, his, his firstborn was a son with Daenerys, who if he was born relatively soon after the marriage, which is entirely possible, he would have been a similar age to, say, Valar and could have been a squire in the battle, too. So there may have been a, little, a young Martell prince at Baylor's side for this. And maybe even both a Martell prince and his own young Valar, which would have been neat. And one of the reasons, another reason Summerhall is, is notable as a possible gathering spot for troops is Robert Baratheon did the same. He gathered an army at Summerhall, ended up having to fight a battle there against Randall Tarley, which was the only battle he lost. But still, the point is it happened. Got that big army together one way or another, whether it was through marching south personally, whether calling the banners and letting them deal with it themselves and, and bringing forth their troops. We don't know. But one way or another, it happened. A large army of maybe of 10,000 or so, maybe similar to the army that Prince Lewin Martell led out of Dorne during Robert's Rebellion, except those men were raised to lose, and these ones were raised and came out ahead, came out the victor. They were rushing to get to the battle on time. They were hoping that by the time they got there, they didn't find a new king already sitting on the throne. That would be a problem. Like, yeah, we showed up. But like, then we'd like, ah, oh, do we bend the knee? I mean, what do we do? Do we bend <laughs> the knee to Damon instead of fight him if he's already defeated Daron by the time we get there? Crap. Like, what's in the head of the common soldier there? We don't know. They don't know what they're going to get what's going to happen by the time they get there, it may already be over. What a strange, strange headspace to be in. Like, we're marching force to a great battle or for nothing. <laughs> it might already be over. <laughs> yeah. You might be hoping for that. You might be like, ah, I, I really want to get revenge on these Westerosi, but I kind of want to not fight at all. I kind of want to just not die. You know, <laughs> I just want to go home. <laughs> yeah, can we go back now? Yeah. My family and my farm, it was a lot nicer. Yeah, I feel like that would be perhaps the most common sentiment. But there'd be plenty of hardliners, plenty of people ready to fight, plenty of people driven, whipped into a frenzy. You know, outrage can take people to pretty nasty places in their mind. Makes them make you do things you wouldn't normally do, especially when there's mob mentality 
added to the mix, you know? Like, well, all my other neighbors are mad. I guess I should be mad too. Yeah, let's get them, I guess. And then <laughs> a few days later, you're fully bought in. All right, let's take a quick break here and then get back to it with the actual battle of the red grass field. Guilty Undertaker says, I do wonder if the Ironwoods were actually Damon supporters or if they were Dornish separatists who saw Damon as a path to bring back the old way of Vulture Kings and other such business within Dorn. Good mention of the Vulture King or a Vulture King because we're going to have that as part of the second half, one of them. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a good way of looking at it, Guilty Undertaker, because whether they actually cared about Damon is, is definitely questionable, but they definitely cared about Martell supremacy and... Dornish independence. That seems, yeah, so Damon's cause aligned with theirs rather than them being specifically aligned with Damon. Damon would give them what they want, but he's not necessarily someone that they would have picked under other circumstances. So yeah, I, I, I agree with that interpretation in terms of what actually motivated them. Nina says as well, even though George's intention was to parallel Henry VIII with Aegon the Unworthy. She doesn't think it was that effective and doesn't really <laughs> think the parallel is that strong. Yeah, in fact, when you, sa- when you said that, she in the chat went, no! <laughs> no! <laughs> and so I wanted yeah, to make it doesn't agree with She comparison. doesn't agree with it. The comparison it. is made often. Yes. Yeah, George himself makes the, has made the comparison and lots of people when reading it naturally make the comparison. Whether that is accurate to the true history I agree with her. <laughs> it is not. But when you can look at popular history, popular perception, what he's playing with, I just think, of course, people see that. Yeah. When you but, dig into it, you're right. Some of those comparisons fall off. But there are some surface level comparisons are definitely there. So and yeah, that, that's what yeah. he's doing. You know, he's, it's intentional to yeah. have those surface level comparisons. But, you know, there's that. Definitely. But no, yeah. do not do not think that because you said Nina's name within a sentence of saying that that she she doesn't sign agree. off on that. That's yeah. right. Cool. All right. Well, we good clarification. Thanks for that. Also, our Patreon drive continues. There is about a month and a half left before we do away with our two dollar level. But if you sign up now, you can have that two dollar level as long as you keep it. You'll be grandfathered in. A lot of people have signed up. We have a lot of new grandfathers. A lot of new grandfathers signing up. Join that group. Don't you want to be a grandfather too? (laughs) This isn't the best sell, is it? I don't know. Who doesn't want to be a granddad? Yeah, well... Respect it. You won't turn into a granddad overnight. Also, if you are a patron or a member through our Spotify subscriptions or a donator through our website, which is also a way to support History of Westeros, We are hosting our first Quiplash session this Wednesday, June 21st. If you're a patron, you can be a direct participant. If you are someone else, you can watch and vote on the results. You can still play and have a good time. You just won't be one of the people filling in the answers. You can still vote on the answers, and the votes are tabulated with every answer. So votes actually drive the game. It's very audience participation is a big part of this. So even if you're not a patron, you can absolutely participate and have a great time. We love Quiplash. We've done it at Ice and FireCon, and it is super fun. It's Mad Libs, basically, but yeah. multiplayer Mad Libs fill in the blank with funny stuff, and they're all a Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon themed questions, or prompts rather, not questions. So, Similar uh, to that. So you can go to the History of Westeros Discord server and join, and when you join there, there are instructions in the main channel on how to get the patron role, or you can just tag me or do what what have you. A lot of you are already in there. But once you have that role assigned to you, you'll be able to see this channel. 
In other gaming news that reminds me of Lansing Sean, <laughs> we have been playing our CK3 campaigns on Twitch now. We moved from YouTube to Twitch. The videos are still available on YouTube. They are in the playlist CK2, CK2, CK3 playlist folder. Not folder, rather. Just playlist on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> so you can see them all there. They all get put there. They're also viewable on Twitch, which is where we do them live. But if you want to catch the replays, you can still see them on YouTube. Yeah, and we're, they should still show the chat, even though the on YouTube, the chat won't be embedded anymore. But on the screen, it shows up on the screen. So you should yeah. be able to follow along with the conversation when relevant. And the reason I made the Lansing Sean joke just now is that I'm currently playing Jamie Lannister as Lord of Casterly Rock. You're like, well, how did that happen? Well, he got kicked out of the Kingsguard because he lost a leg. So, and he still enters tournaments and jousts. So, Sean, <laughs> yeah. you should still be entering tournaments yeah, you and should, jousts. <laughs> that's right. Don't you want to be like Jamie? All right. All right, I will. Yeah. Whenever there's a jousting tournament around, he'll enter it. Yeah. He'll enter all the jousting tournaments in Denver. <laughs> he hasn't missed a single one yet. <laughs> So that's really fun. The graphics on CK3 are amazing. The Casterly Rock and Lannisport look fantastic. It's really fun playing Jamie. We're married to a young woman who looks like Brienne, <laughs> including her size. And we're trying to have large, handsome, gigantic warrior children. And we have succeeded. We have four large children. One of them who is, has the beautiful trait and the Amazonian trait. So <laughs> she's large and beautiful. And our eventual goal is to usurp the Iron Throne from Robert, who is still king. He's still married to Cersei. And yeah, even, even 20 years after he would have died in canon. So we're having a great time with that. Better watch out. You're going to have some death by snoo-snoo. Death by snoo-snoo. Amazonian women. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we love our Futurama references here on History of Westeros podcast. I hope you do too, because otherwise you're like, I don't know what the hell they're talking That's about. That's to be a whole lot more drama references when the new season starts. Oh, yeah. It's like the fifth time Futurama has returned from the grave, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, it is. They've other movies yet. It, it is. It's great. It won't die because it's great. That's why it won't die. Because it's the future. We keep getting closer to it. <laughs> you can't. You can't. Totally. You can never get to the future. The red grass field. Let's talk about that. So, Baylor didn't fight, let alone win a famous duel like Damon did versus Gwen Corbray. There was no clash of Valyrian steel for him. He didn't have any to clash with. Right. There was no mad charge to snatch an ancestral sword while maiming an arch enemy before escaping overseas to fight again either. He, he didn't have the epic story of Bitter Steel, nor Blood Raven, nor Damon Blackfire. But he did, nevertheless, come out of it a hero. He led his soldiers well. Being a good leader, winning men to your cause, getting them to fight for you, having their morale being as good as it could be, those are hugely important qualities. You don't have to... You know, kill a bunch of people with your sword to be an effective leader in medieval-style times. It's a quality that will continue to matter after the fighting is over. I mean, skill with a sword is crucial in times like this. It helps a lot. But in day-to-day -day ruling of the kingdom, it doesn't do you anything. Except for maybe framing your reputation a bit, maybe helping back up your authority. So there is a little of that. But still, the qualities he showed on the Redgrass field as a leader, those are the qualities that would continue for him. These are the qualities that Westeros would end up relying on and they, it was the better for it. You know, I, I don't know how it would have gone if Damon had won, but I don't think it would have been better. I don't think Damon, I mean, Damon probably would have better been a better king than Robert Baratheon, but he had a lot of those qualities of warrior first, administrator, well, not second. <laughs> it's as far down the list. Like he also wasn't a womanizer or a drinker, although maybe he would have become one. I don't know. I mean, 
Who knows? Like Robert wasn't necessarily known to be an, a big alcoholic, except for people close around him in those early days. So who knows about Damon? Now, while Sir Eustace isn't the most unbiased observer, in fact, he's very biased. There's, it's impossible to have an unbiased observer here. So we, we work with what we have. Even when Damon Blackfire fails, it's framed as a good thing. It's like, oh, he was too honorable. <laughs> <laughs> when he defeated Gwen Corbra, he dismounted and ordered him tended to by his maester. And Eustace says, oh, that was the difference. Quote. So close a thing. If Damon had ridden over Gwen Corbra and left him to his fate, he might have broken Maycar's left before Bloodraven could have taken the ridge. The day would have belonged to the Black Dragons then. The hand slain and the road to King's Landing open before them, Damon might have been sitting on the Iron Throne by the time Prince Baylor could come up with his storm lords and his Dornishmen. The singers can go on about their hammer and their anvil, sir, but it was the Kinslayer who turned the tide with a white arrow and a black spell. He's basically saying if it wasn't for Damon being so honorable, Baylor wouldn't have had a chance. He wouldn't have even gotten there on time. He's saying the hammer and the anvil were basically irrelevant. The battle was decided before that. It was decided when Damon was killed and the hammer and the anvil came after that. He's basically saying the singers are making a big deal out of a mop-up operation. It's to be expected from Eustace's bitterness, but he's got a point, you know, like, yeah, Damon was already dead by the time Baylor got there. Like, that's pretty big. Not only that, but Bloodraven had already lost his eye. Bittershield already recovered the sword, had his mad charge and took out Bloodraven. All that happened before Baylor got there. So yeah, Eustace has a little bit of a point. Like, Baylor maybe did get too much praise for what he did. Like, he was remembered as a hero nonetheless, though, for leadership and for that timing. That timing was, was pretty perfect. Yeah. He missed most of the famous last battle. But hey, I can kind of understand why he got such a claim. When it comes to battles, for many reasons, if not the most important reason of all, it's better to be the guy that finishes the battle than the one that starts it. Because, <laughs> you know, if you're not the one that finishes it, you probably lost. <laughs> and Baylor Breakspear was remembered as exactly that man. Here's a quote from The World of Ice and Fire. The battle came to an end when Prince Baylor Breakspear appeared with a host of stormlords and Dornishmen falling on the rebel rear while the young Prince Makar rallied what remained of Lord Aaron's van and made an implacable anvil against which the rebels were hammered and destroyed. 10,000 men had died for Damon Blackfire's vanity and many more were wounded and maimed. King Daron's efforts at peace had been shattered through no fault of his own, save perhaps too much mercy for his envious half-brother. Are you so, proud of me, Aziz? <laughs> I said that without laughing. Nice, good job. <laughs> it's not over yet. <laughs> <laughs> so to recap the action real briefly, Damon led his army towards King's Landing, leading the vanguard himself was blocked by the Loyalist host, which was led by the Aarons, Lord Aaron and Gwen Corbray there. Then he was shot down by Bloodraven. The rebels started to flee, and Bloodraven shot down the twin sons. Bittersteel, who commanded the rear, turned the route into another charge. He, led, he restored the, the route and turned it into a charge, which he led towards where Damon fell. He recovered Blackfire and then charged Bloodraven, who they dueled, Bittersteel got the better of the duel. 
And it's possible he would have even finished Blood Raven off. We're not sure. This may have been when Baylor arrived. And when Baylor arrived, the smash into the rebel rear, and that basically <laughs> ended the battle. Now, that's the part you were going to laugh at, huh? The rebel rear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bittersteel, if you think about this from a strategic perspective, Bittersteel's job, he was leading the rear. So his job is to prevent something like what Baylor did. His job is to watch out for another army approaching. He was, his job is to protect the rear of the army from being smashed into from behind like Baylor did. But because the battle was over, losing, and they were, he, he had to do something to recover the sword and this other stuff. So had things gone a little differently as well, uh, Baylor arrives and finds himself facing Bittersteel and is going to be delayed. He'll have to fight his way through that in order to get to the main army. So it really could have gone a lot differently because this was a matter, like these things all happened together so closely in a matter of like minutes, not, not even, not hours, let alone days. For what it's worth, there's other ways it could have gone differently that would have made it more clear. Mm -hmm. Like we're, we're looking at ways like it was so close and it could have gone the other way. Well, it, maybe it was so close and it could have been more clear that it was going the way it was. Oh, yeah. What if Baylor got there a day early? Yeah. What if he just got there a day yeah, early? Yeah, then would have been all a, these close things wouldn't have been, would have been close. Would have just, yeah. Yeah. That's true. Damon may have just had to back off. Battle may not have happened. They'd be like, sir, yeah. they've got 40,000 men. We've got 20. Should we <laughs> yeah. not do this right now? Like, oh, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> and who knows what a monumental effort it may have been on Baylor's point to get his soldiers there on time. You know, yeah, yeah that's think true. of the logistical and political coordinations it would have taken to do all that. It's easy to blow all that off because one guy was better with the sword. But hey, man, that guy was better with the sword. Bring 40,000 troops to the battlefield. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. Like he may, a, a weaker commander, a less charismatic, a less capable commander may have, may have been completely late. He may have showed up yeah. three hours later, which would have been too late. So Three days later. Three days later, which would have been way too late. Yeah, you're right. And you notice that that quote was a lot less harsh. It wasn't as biased as your Sir Eustace because it's, it's from a maester's point of view. It's still, it still, it calls Damon Blackfire's vanity. And it also says King Daron maybe gave too much leeway to his half-brother. But so it kind of leaves both sides open there a bit. I would be a little harder on Daron, but not like super hard. Like he was trying for peace. I, gotta, I respect that. But he may have learned a lesson about trusting too much or keeping people too close or, or being a little too lenient, as the quote suggests. He also saw how well his son acquitted himself in combat as a leader, which was, that had to make him very proud, had to make him feel good about the future. And it also made him more of a candidate for office, which we'll see here in a minute. Like that had to give a lot of people confidence in his abilities. Like they knew he had it in him probably. Like everybody was, oh, the bright shining prince, he's great, he's great. But until he actually performs... When it matters, you can't know how he's going to handle it. And he did. He handled it really well. He handled it so well, arguably, he got too much credit. I think, and we talked about this in our episode on the Redgrass Field made seven years ago, that Makar deserves more credit than Baylor. Makar is the one who had to step in and take over for the slain Lord Hayford. The commander, the Lord, the hand that took over for Lord Butterwell was killed in the Redgrass Field. And Makar sort of stepped up to reform the lines. And he's the one who, as it says, gathered the shattered lines into an anvil that Baylor hammered against. Well, Baylor got to sneak in and attack from behind, right? Whereas Makar was there the whole time fighting and holding people off and resisting Damon's initial charge. It sounds like he had a harder job. Baylor kind of came in and saved the day, but Makar's job was more difficult and more challenging. He acquitted himself just as well, if not better. 
But afterwards, it was Baylor who got all the credit, who or most of the credit. I mean, it was the hammer and the anvil. Like they, they that was the, the song. But more credit goes to the hammer. Like hammer's just a cooler name, <laughs> right? <laughs> like how many hammer? Like it's one of the most common nicknames there is. Like right now, any of you out there could name like five people who have the nickname Hammer. MC Hammer. MC Hammer. Yeah, MC Hammer. <laughs> There's that Hammer who won the second Magic the Gathering Pro Tour. Hammer Rainier was his name. <laughs> Hammer and Hank, Hank Aaron for baseball. You know, there's mm-hmm. even within A Song of Ice and Fire, the Hammer of the Waters, the Hammer of the Dornish, Hard Hue Hammer. There's just, there's just a lot of hammers, y'all. Hammer and Nail in the, in the Second Sons or whatever. <laughs> you know, there's just a lot of hammers. It's popular. Hammer? I hardly know her. Exactly. So Breakspear, he gets another nickname because when you're cool, you can get multiple nicknames. So he's Breakspear and the Hammer. He breaks the spear with hammers. And now, make our... Being in his brother's shadow is a pretty big deal, but that's really more of a story for Makar. Being in someone's shadow, is it's more appropriate to discuss that when you're the guy in the shadow rather than the one who casts the shadow. So we'll, we'll talk about this more when we do an episode of Makar, because Makar does deserve his own episode one day. TKOK Podcast Network, shout out to our good friend Tommy and the New Dad show. Yeah, yeah. Super Chat says, love on Father's Day from the Thigh Sparrow. Not the High Sparrow, but the Thigh Sparrow. <laughs> right on. <laughs> named that because of his creamy thighs, which are well tattooed. Yes, yes. <laughs> he has a tattoo of, of Winterfell on one thigh currently. Yeah. Also, I will note that part of the TKOK podcast network is the New Dad podcast, which not such a new dad right now, more of an experienced <laughs> dad, I'd say, He's... but relevant on Father's Day. Yes. Uh-huh. Ha- yeah, happy Father's Day to all fathers out there, except mine. <laughs> screw that guy. Screw that yeah. guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or yours if your father's like mine. Yeah, screw him. Screw them too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So hand to the king. So not everyone has a father like Daron the second. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some people have a father like Aegon the Unworthy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Like Daron the Second. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. So he was hand from the years 196 up until his death in the year 209. So a good solid 13 plus years as hand of the king. It was a good 13 years. And here's a quote to represent those good times. With his half-brothers dealt with and the strength of his sons and heirs supporting him, many thought that King Daron had now ensured that the realm would be under Targaryen rule for centuries to come. Few could doubt that Baylor Breakspear would be a great king, for he was the heart of chivalry and the soul of wisdom and came to serve his father most ably as Han. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't, it says for centuries to come. It didn't even last one more century. Robert Baratheon became king in about 283 or 282. That's less than 100 years from this, this point. This is the year 196. It's possible Daron wanted Baylor to be hand before this. I mean, he worked with him so closely, but maybe he just didn't have the political clout to promote his son at such an early age. It's so little experience, being so unproven. But boom, clearly he's proven now. He's the, one of the big heroes of the Redgrass field of the rebellion. He successfully showed his leadership abilities and it played out in a way that, that made him maybe get even more acclaim than he deserved, though he clearly deserved a lot of acclaim. So the question of experience and capability was thoroughly answered. So I'm guessing if he was a questionable choice before, he went to a popular one. 
And especially because a lot of the people who would have been opposed to it were just killed <laughs> or lost and had to bend the knee and were no, and in no place to demand anything. As he had when the war preached broke out, he may have preached mercy for the rebels, like bring them back in peacefully. Let's invite them back to, you know, make them, sure, concessions. Maybe they have to give up hostages here and there, but let's not be too hard on them, right? But Bloodraven and others argued for severe punishments, and Bloodraven's esteem at court would have also gone up. He's the guy that actually killed Damon. He showed himself very capable as well. He also lost an eye, so he was you know, have, I don't know if that gives them any sympathy, but they'd be like, look, I, proof, I, I lost this on the red grass field, y'all. He could maybe intimidate people with his opinions based on, he would look intimidating, hell. I mean, there's that too, but just his authority for having been there and faced that and been there, done that, all that. Yeah, no one can blow him off. Like, when's the last time you were on a battlefield or something like that? <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. Yeah, so whatever, any any anti-Blood Raven sentiment would have would have been lessened given his participation and just the fact that whoa he's he's even more dangerous than we thought like the rumors of him using sorcery to kill damon and his willingness to be a kinslayer and all this other stuff like oh man this guy is ruthless do not cross him so what you have is a court at which a lot of people's esteem is raised garon wins the war even though he didn't send any even though he didn't participate directly he sent the right people to do it he still gets a lot of credit baylor and bloodraven get a ton of credit too so they have honors and favors and standing at court with which to argue their positions. King Daron was surprisingly, somewhat surprisingly harsh with the rebels. It wasn't, I don't know what that means because we don't get a lot of details, but, but it, people were surprised given the way he had handled things like this before. He went farther than they thought he would. And this, I got to think, is partly Blood Raven's influence. Maybe Baylor wasn't happy about that. Maybe he pushed for a little more leniency, but Evidence suggested perhaps that leniency backfired. So they might not want to be so lenient. There might be a lot of other people that would agree with that. But like, yeah, look, Baylor, like, I appreciate your chivalrous take here, but I got to side with Brendan because leniency did backfire or blackfire pretty badly. So we got to be harsher. We got to demand hostages. We got to take land away. We got to do that stuff, which of course had. It's, you never can tell. Like, we, we only have one data point here. We don't know how it could have gone if they were more lenient or, or even harsher. We do know that some people were very dissatisfied and it did maybe stoke the next rebellion, or the, the wedding, rather, <laughs> the wedding party. If you're going to stoke a rebellion, that's the best one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One right? that actually, <laughs> like, three people died or something, <laughs> you know, and one of them was just bragging about being a, an informer, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> One of them was Lord Gorman Peak, like, yeah, good riddance to that guy, you know. Black Tom Heddle, also good riddance. Yeah, so yeah, that went pretty well. For Daron, he grew up, and we got to put ourselves in his shoes for a minute too, because Baylor would know this. Baylor would know where his father's coming from. Granddad, Aegon, who he grew up with, let's not forget, Baylor was around for his grandfather trying to undermine his side of the family constantly. Humiliating, trying to remove them from the line of succession, all this stuff. So. There is that as well to balance out any leniency on Baylor's part. You might be like, well, yeah, even the leniency can come within our own family. So maybe, maybe I should be a little stricter about these things. Maybe he changed his tune a little bit. Maybe, I mean, we're talking about a young man transitioning to adulthood. 
he may have been disabused of some notions. If he had been friends with Damon, which we speculated on off and on throughout this, this pair of episodes, it would wake him up to like, well, I got to be careful about who I make friends with. And I got to, I can't allow my prejudices to, or my friendship with people distract me from my greater duty to the realm here. You know, he seems like a very serious person. Yeah, I wonder that. And that would be a primary goal, not having another civil war. Two major civil wars in the second century of Targaryen rule, the dance and the Blackfire Rebellion. Now, of course, as we know, there would be more Blackfire Rebellions, not just the wedding in the next turn, next century. But by that time, Baylor would be long dead. So during his time, I, maybe it was easy. Maybe it was just because it took Bitterstill so long to get the Golden Company set up and other things. But they kept it on lockdown. Like they kept it in, in a good place. They may have even done clever things to slow bitter steel down. They may have made moves overseas. We know they remarried Makar's son, Daron, to Kiera of Tyrosh much later. Now, that would be after Baylor's death. But the first marriage of Kiera of Tyrosh to Baylor's son was very political because, you know, Damon's strength lies in Tyrosh. They may have been trying to, like, undermine some of his Tyroshi strength. So, yeah, like I said, I was a little harsher on Daron about stopping the Blackfire Rebellions in the first place. They didn't clearly didn't learn enough of the lessons from the dance to stop this one from happening. But, of course, to be fair, Aegon IV, I mean, that dude did so much to make it, to set the, plant the seeds for the Blackfire Rebellion in the first place. Like, he's the reason more than anything. But, you know, I mean, Daron did appoint Lord Butterwell. There's this, this kind of, that was probably a mistake, even though he may have been a good peacetime hand. Let's say he didn't appoint Lord Butterwell. Does that mean it wouldn't have happened? You know, yeah. he was really set up for failure. Like, he, maybe he didn't handle it perfectly, but he probably handled it way better than average. And even if he had handled it perfectly, it might have still happened. Yeah. And I think from like a greater karmic angle, George is saying, talking about reality, like just because you make the right moves, because you do, you have the right attitudes and your, your goals are noble, it doesn't mean it's going to work out. It doesn't guarantee the best results. That's the world. You know, there's, there's going to be bad people trying to undermine you. A random chance can undermine you. Mother nature. I mean, there's random things. Like, the tornado comes and you're blamed for it because everybody's superstitious. Like, what do you do? You know? <laughs> I will say, though, I don't feel like George has a nihilistic viewpoint. No, he's you not. Know, it's, I, I don't think he... It's not like you shouldn't try to do the right thing. Even when you do the right thing, it doesn't always work out. But you should still try to do the right thing. I agree. I totally agree. I, I totally agree with that inter interpretation, too, because a lot of people do think George is a nihilist. And it's just like, just, I don't see that. He absolutely makes it clear that, that the trying is hard. But he doesn't say. He never makes it seem like it's pointless. He I totally agree with yeah. your interpretation that he makes it. He shows that it's worthwhile. It's worthwhile to try. Brienne is a hero. Brienne is a hero, you know? yes. Brienne right. is a hero. Dunk yeah. is a hero. Yeah. Ned Stark is heroic. He's a hero, too, in a much different way, you know? for sticking up for children and, and for peace and things like that. And all the heroes might not be perfect, but I think we, we jumped to Brienne because she is close to perfect. Yeah, maybe one of the perfect. You know, I don't know, a moral standpoint maybe or whatever. Maybe as close and as we, we get. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. And we, don't, and we don't feel like she's wasting her time with her silly integrity, you know. No. Yeah, no one reads that and go like, what a dumbass. And no one reads that and goes, ah, oh, that's stupid, Brienne. Well, maybe someone does, but no one I know. <laughs> I would disagree with anyone who thinks that way. <laughs> The complaints would continue, though. Even though the Blackfires lost, there would still be people saying, look, this court is too Dornish, or why do the Dornish get these concessions that the other High Lords don't? That, was, that would still happen. 
in court with petitions instead of with swords and insults, right? That would still be going on. It wouldn't just die out with the Blackfires. And Baylor, as Hand of the King, would be in charge of handling a lot of that. I mean, as we know, the Hand is the front line for a lot of these things. The King dreams, the Hand builds, that sort of thing. And this King and Hand worked together better than most. They, they were of one mind more so than a lot of others. We have seen a lot of times where the King and the Hand were contentious. Tywin and Ares being one of the most. But Tywin and Ares worked really well early on. So even they were an example of King and Hand getting along until, until they weren't. So there'd be still people saying, you know, mocking him for being Dornish and whispering about that. And, but he would probably have handled it with grace because that seems to be how he handles most things. I mean, maybe he would have his moments where it chafed at him and he got frustrated. But, I, you know, I feel like he would have kept that under wraps, done that behind closed doors. But maybe I'm making too much of his goodness. One other weird question we have is... What would he have thought about Daenerys and Damon? Whether Damon wanted to marry twice, whether that was something that was just young, something that happened when he was younger. It's always been a little puzzling. Did Damon really think he could marry twice? I kind of doubt that. Maybe when he was, maybe when Aegon was still king, he could have thought that. But I mean, Baylor probably wouldn't have been cool with that. I mean, Daron definitely wasn't either. Like polygamy under this new. Style of the faith. Yeah, polygamy under front of my salad. In front of my salad. (laughs) Yeah, no way. So I don't think so. But it's it's even weird that he could have thought that he was enabled to do that or allowed to do that, given all this. So one thing might be a conflation of old rumor. Like Barristan brings this point up. He's like, oh, he rose when he was denied the hand of Nair. It's like, no, that happened eight years later. You know, and it's like it definitely wasn't the the straw that broke the camel's back for him. So if it mattered at all. So I think, yeah, I think maybe some of this is just exaggerated by the historians because it sounds romantic. And it's the kind of thing in world people would latch onto as a reason while it being not very accurate. And he may have believed, like Nina writes that it's possible that when Damon was like 14 years old, he could have thought he could also marry someone else because... He thought of himself as another Aegon, the Conqueror, and his father, Aegon, was, had nine mistresses and all of this. So it's not that far from maybe believing this stuff naively because of his age. And, and, you know, maybe Rhaegar will later be with Lyanna while he's married. So it's not... The idea isn't completely crazy, even though it, it seems culturally unacceptable. Arguably, it was more culturally acceptable when Rhaegar did it, <laughs> even though it was less acceptable from some of the High Lords. Like, the Faith were more powerful in, in Daron's day, in Baylor's day. As well, too, like, how did that go with the, with the marchers as things proceeded? Did the marchers start to calm down over time? Like, all right, one realm, fine, we're not at war with the Dornish. But there may have been more just Dornish incursions. They may have still been sending raiders into Dorne, just to petulantly continue the old ways under wraps, you know, send raids here and there. Regardless of what was happening, regardless of what ill will still was out there, a key goal for any monarch and his son in hand would be to curb these bad feelings, these flare-ups from turning into another war, turning into some big problem. They would recognize that it's going to take generations to fix these problems for good. The best they can do is just keep it from flaring up too big into another full-scale rebellion. 
let's talk about outside threats because it's one thing to see problems within the family or within the realm. It's another to, to stop things that aren't even in Westeros. Like they have limited ability to interfere with things that are happening outside their own borders. Uh, like a lot of things that happen, happen within the family, right? Like it wasn't like the Dornish didn't start a war and attack. You know, the Ironborn didn't do that. It was a civil war, two Targaryen factions going against each other. So these things start from within. That's why I put a little bit more blame on most than Daron, on Daron than most, because it started within his family. Like this is, these are your relatives. Your job was to prevent this from happening. You didn't. <laughs> I think he did a good job in general as a king. I think he earned the name, the good, but I'm still critical of this. You know? <laughs> but, as I alluded to before, there may have been some clever moves they did to undermine whatever Bitter Steel was trying to do in Essos. He had Blackfire, but the Golden Company was informed until about the year 212. And I wonder if they are the reason it took so long. Nonviolent interference, bribing, offerings, like, hey, you know what? Certain key commander of Bitter Steel's like, you know what, bro? Just come back over to Westeros. We'll promise you safe passage. We'll let you have some of your land back. Just come on back. That's what you want anyway, right? So just like buy off a few of his, of his top guys. And that just like sets him back a lot, you know? Just bring him back in. Like, you don't want to live in Essos as a sellsword. Come back here, bro. We'll give you your, you know? I could see that working on a few of them. Yeah. A couple sabotage ships. A couple... Uh... Mm-hmm. Red tape at the port and... <laughs> Give a trade deal to Tyrosh in exchange for not backing them in something else. Yeah. Like, just something. Just little nonviolent ways of slowing them down, of blocking their moves. Yeah. And Tyro- Tyrosh isn't a monarch. We got we to gotta remember that. They're an arc- they have archons, which are elected officials. So we got to figure Rohan of Tyrosh, Damon Blackfire's wife, she was connected. She was part of some big family. And so when Kiera of Tyrosh marries Valar, Baylor's son, this, as I alluded to before, was likely to curb Tyrashi influence to give them a, a counterbalance within Tyrashi society against any using them against Westeros. Now, Kiera, like I said, is going to remarry to Daron the Drunkard later after Valar dies in the Great Spring Sickness, which shows how important this marriage was to them. They thought it was so important that they remarried her to another Targaryen prince, to another crown prince. And that says a lot about what their, their continued worries about future Blackfire incursions, even though at this point, nothing, nothing of that sort has happened yet. By the time they remarry Kiera to Daron, there will have been the second Blackfire incursion and the third Blackfire rebellion, which was a close-run thing. Nina thinks this marriage was probably arranged and occurred after the first Blackfire rebellion. That is Kiera to Valar. Now, Kiera and Valar never had any children. So that's unfortunate. But had they had children, it would have been pretty interesting to, for people to compare Damon's still living sons to those of the Red Dragons who are still around and, you know, this, all this stuff. And then as well later, it becomes very interesting to consider as part of his legacy. Consider the preacher. Remember the preacher that's like, oh, you know, the twin Damon's the holier one, you know, the, the gods favored him, you know, blood ravens with his spell and his sorceries, evil. And the deaths of 
these children are of, of Baylor's children, Valar and Matari's. It's kind of like you could frame that as the death of Aegon and Aemon at the Redgrass Field. So the two first sons of Daemon versus the two only sons of Baylor. It's like, well, the gods have spoken. Baylor's line is ended. Daemon's is still going. So you wonder if that was a superstitious call out by adherents of Daemon or people who wanted to see the Blackfires continue. Of course, this is much later, but it would be the same people would have been preaching this and that during Baylor's life would have been able to pivot to this later. Like, see, see, we, we've been saying this for decades now. The gods finally had their due. You know, it took a while, but they did it. You know, they showed the gods can't be cheated. Very results-oriented. Yes, very. But <laughs> that's a lot of people are that. <laughs> yes, yes. They sure are. Nina says, Kira of Tyrosh is a very, is, has a lot of parallels to Catherine of Aragon. And more more potential connections there for real world stuff there. So that's a, that's a discussion for another time. But wanted to throw that out. So if Maron and Daenerys's eldest son wasn't at the Redgrass Field because he wasn't old enough to squire for Baylor, we only need to look a few years later for when this is a lot more likely because we don't know when this kid was born. But whenever he was born, at some point he turned old enough to be a squire, and I mean. It's super straightforward. This is Baylor Breakspear, the crown prince, the heart of soul and soul of nobility and chivalry in the seven kingdoms. Of course you want your son squire to be, to be a squire to him, especially when he's like your, your nephew, you know, or, or I guess he would actually be, yeah, he would be cousin because he'd be a lot older, but Daenerys is his aunt. So yeah, anyway. Close relation and a pretty ideal choice. So yeah, maybe this son of Maron Martell was raised with aside Baylor at least for a little while. Briefly, let's check back in on magic and prophecy because that's always worth talking about here and there. We talk about Blood Raven's increase, increased role because of his being so effective during the Blackfire Rebellion and his promotion. He may have been not officially Master of Whispers, but we think he was. He was called Master of Whispers. We just don't know when officially he achieved that title with his enhanced clout, with Shiera in the picture now, and Daron's own son, Ares, who was bookish. You've got this cadre at court, this group that we discussed in the Shiera Seastar episode, in particular, as well as other places, that are very, influ- very interested in researching the occult and the arcane. And again, Ares is the one who found the prophecy of the dragons returning. And throw that mix in... Daron the Drunkard's dreams, who were not, he, he would have maybe started having dreams at a young age. We're not clear on that, but he was born before, certainly well before Baylor died. Obviously, Baylor died and Daron the Drunkard was right there at the trial of seven with him. So he would have been privy, perhaps, to his nephew's dreams. Maybe not the contents of them, but he would know that his nephew was a dreamer, most likely. And, Damon, and we mentioned Damon II, who was probably at court until he was around eight or nine, or at least would have been in and out of court. His dreams might have been something people talked about as well if they were aware of them, which in his case, they might not have been. But it's impossible for Baylor not to be aware that Targaryens have dreams, that Targaryens want to bring dragons back. Even Baylor the Blessed prayed over his dragon eggs. So it wasn't even off the table for, for the, the pious Targaryens. So what did he think of it? We have no idea, but it's, it's, he had to have had opinions. He had to have had thoughts on it. What did he think of magical pursuits? The fact that it was a time of peace enabled more magical pursuits. Like this is something you don't have time for when you're in civil war. 
you know? Maybe Shiera does because she wasn't fighting in the war. But Bloodraven, he was a little busy. Ares I, not a warrior. Maybe he was still just in the library during the war. But still, you got to figure there's more time for the stuff when the realm isn't at war. More ability to, for academic pursuits. More time for that. More appropriate for that. From what we can tell, when Ares became king, it picked up even more because you've got the bookish dude who's actually in charge and no one's going to tell him to do other stuff. He's like, no, I want to read my books. That's, you take care of the realm. <laughs> I'm going to keep reading. Super interesting to wonder what Baylor thought of that, whether it was one of the things that some of the hardliners didn't like. The people who were Blackfires, did they associate this stuff with Bloodraven before he was big into it? Or was it something, they, a reason they turned on it because he was associated with it? Like, oh, this is the stuff Bloodraven's into. We don't, we don't like that. Or, or what? You know, it's, it's always a big open question as to what people think about magic. I feel like from what we know of Baylor he would have at least accounted for these things. Mm. I don't think he would have just like completely dismissed it. I think he's, he's been described specifically as wise, you know? Yeah. And I think that he would have seen enough to be aware of the reality of the, you know, it may, he may even have sort of, a, I don't know how to say it, it's like Davos or Stannis suspicions. Like, mm. I don't know about this magic stuff, but it's real. Yeah. Like he might, mm. you know, and he might even be more accepted of like uh, dreams from his relatives, you know, like he, he might not get obsessed with it like some might. Yeah. But I don't think that he would have been ignorant to it or dismissive of it. Yeah, I think you're right because it would be weird to be dismissive of something that's clearly effective. Doesn't sound like something he would do. Uh, you also wonder, like we hear that Bloodraven and maybe Shiera, or with Shiera's help, was using magic to ferret out secrets as part of being a master whispers. If, if Baylor was aware of any specifics or details, that might be interesting or cause for concern or just something they spoke on or like, don't go too far with that, you know, keep that under wraps, <laughs> you know, I don't know. But it's, there, there are good questions that we can't answer. If this ever hits TV, those questions might have to be answered. They're going to have to fill in some of those blanks. They can't just ignore it. The Vulture King. In the year 206, after Baylor had been hand for a good 10 years, helping rule, managing the realm after the Blackfire Rebellions, helping his father do good things, keep the peace. This was a new Vulture King. It wasn't the first one. This was at least the fourth Vulture King. We don't know how many total there were. It's kind of a microcosm of the Blackfire Kings and that they just kept coming. By the way, the, my unsullied is showing. I didn't know there were multiple Vulture Kings. Mm. Is there a certain time frame and or geographical location that they were limited to? They're always in the Red Mountains. The Red Mountains is the key here. They're all pretty much Dornish. And they're all, yeah, it's, it's like the Shrouded Lord. So the Dread Pirate Roberts thing, there's been multiple people who call themselves that. They aren't necessarily related family-wise. But they're basically outlaw kings that emerge in the Red Mountains. And because the Red Mountains is, is difficult to penetrate. So it's a really hard place to root out an outlaw mm -hmm. king. Is it, is it something that's emerged, you know, like four or five times over the past 10,000 years or four or five times over the past 100 years? More of the latter, yeah. It, wasn't, it okay. wasn't a thing from way back. The first Vulture King was during the time of Jaehaerys, I believe, the old king. So not, so only about, so like in the year like 60 or 70, something like that. So yeah, and, there, and this was the fourth, okay. about 120 years later, 130 years later, 150 years later, something like that. Yeah, so it's like a combination of the Blackfires and the Dread Pirate Roberts. <laughs> and yes, it's an outlaw tradition. And this 
may have had political or ideological ties to the Ironwoods because this is kind of in their region. The northern part of the Red Mountains, the ones that have borders with the rest of the Seven Kingdoms, so the Vulture King can spill out through secret valleys and passes known only to Dornish into Dorne or into the Marcher lands, or, you know, they have various places they can come in and out of the mountains, and which is what makes them difficult, sort of like Ironborn. They can attack suddenly and get away suddenly, and then when they retreat, you can't really follow them because they go into their mountains where it's very dangerous to follow them. You might be chasing them, and all of a sudden, a bunch of boulders are dropped on your head, you know, and you're ambushed. It's like you're chasing them, but now they're chasing you because you've entered their turf. So, yeah, very dangerous, like the Cranigan. You don't want to follow them into their turf. The Vulture Kings, there's lots of suspicions about them. It's a topic we'll cover specifically one day that they might be proxy, like a proxy king, someone paying them to cause trouble that they can exploit. The Ironwoods would be a good potential example of this because the Ironwoods have often tried to undermine the Martells. Of course, keep in mind, a lot of the Vulture Kings emerged before the Seven Kingdoms was united. This is, I think this is the last Vulture King and the only one that emerges when the Seven Kingdoms is whole. Because all the others come when Dorne is independent. Because it's always been like, well, the Vulture King comes out and does stuff, and the Sunspear's like, oh, we got nothing to do with this. This is an outlaw king. And people are like, is it now? Or is this just a way for you to absolve yourself and have plausible deniability? And we don't know which is true. There could be one. One Vulture King could be a yes. One could be a no. So yeah. Baylor would be faced with this, and this is very interesting. As Hand of the King, it would be his job to take this on even more because look where it's happening. This is when, when he was sent to participate in the Blackfire Rebellions, it was to recruit Stormlanders and Dornishmen. Well, the Vulture King is smack dab in that territory, those two territories, as well as maybe a little bit in the Reach. So there's potential blood ties to for, former rebels. And who united to stop this Vulture King? Lord Karen and Lord Dondarrion. This is only three years before the Hedge Knight, so it's very likely the same Lord Dondarrion that we see in the Hedge Knight, the one that kind of tells Dunk to go away. But Baylor is, is kind to him. He's like, oh, yeah, I jousted against your master, you know? And he's like, no, you couldn't have. That was the, the prince. Oh, you. <laughs> <laughs> this would be, and remember, that's, we don't know what, Baylor's wife, Jenna, what his relation to Lord Dondarrion, or what her relation to John, Lord Dondarrion is, but he's in chance it's his sister or daughter. So, very likely a close relation, which is why we see Baylor and him chatting, they're in-laws. And you would really hope, they would be particularly interested in these results. They would really want to acquit themselves well and reprove that they are capable. Like I said, it had been 10 years since the Blackfire Rebellion. Maybe some people were still chafing at things and it had been a long time since Baylor's victory and maybe they thought thing, he'd gotten soft or weak or who knows, but 10 years is a long time for grievances to be refreshed. And well, they did a good job. They put down this new threat pretty thoroughly and it may have, if it was a test, well, they passed. The new marchers arrangement worked out pretty well. The Karens and the Dondarians worked together whatever enmity may have existed from before. The Charons were probably on the black side. The Dondarians were on the reds, given they were married into the royal family. So that seems to have been set aside. That's good. The evidence of them working together is a sign of things to come. If there had been a split over anything before, this, this mended that. Speaking of that moment with Duncan and Baylor and the joust, 
in the hedge night, we learned that Dunk's former master, Sir Arlen, once doused it against Baylor and broke four lances. Arlen says seven. Baylor's like, no, it's four. But don't feel bad. You know, you're mad. He's just, again, just praises the other guy. He says, no, I don't think less of him. You know, maybe it was just his memory. You know, he, everyone exaggerates here and there. Always being like that. Being friendly, being gentle, being graceful. Sir Arlen had nothing but good things to say about Baylor. It seems to be a widespread opinion, not just from him. Dunk learned it directly from someone who had met him, but just the realm. I mean, everywhere. People just respect him, love him, like expect great things from him. His charm and his understanding of people, his way to handle people, way to talk to people. Everyone feels like they're in good hands with him. They feel like he's going to make respectful, well-considered decisions. If he makes a decision you don't agree with, well, it's a lot easier coming from someone you respect. Someone you think, well, he's probably not doing it for underhanded political reasons. He's probably not doing it for personal gain. You can at least take stock in that when you disagree. That means a lot. It's hard to accept de decisions you don't agree with from someone you hate. Because you just it's hard to not have your mind go to think the worst about them and think, well, they're doing it for underhanded reasons, unethical reasons. But if it's someone you respect, you can kind of sit back and go, all right, I don't like that decision. I disagree with him. But I respect the man who made it. I respect the woman who made it, whoever the person is that we're discussing. And it just makes it a lot easier. And Baylor, and that's, that's, that's something, that's part of why having such a respected, even-handed person at the top can have such a trickle-down effect is that it's harder to argue with what happens. It's harder to argue with their decisions. You, you just have more respect for what comes down from that. Like, it's really hard for anyone to have authority over us. Like, we, all, we don't want people making decisions for us. But when those decisions come from people who are at least wise, at least seem decent, it's so much easier to accept that, especially when you disagree with it. So it's, it's really important to see that that's what the realm was looking forward to. Sometimes you'll disagree with something that you wouldn't have otherwise just because you dislike the person deciding it yeah. so much. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And you might even learn... Especially if it's close in any way, then it becomes really easy to like become against something that maybe you didn't care that much about, but you care about the person deciding. And it's hard for you to come back around on that, be like, okay, I was wrong. That person I hated, their decision was actually good. But if you, but if you turn that, invert that and say, okay, I didn't agree with this decision from this person I respected, five years later, go, you know what? That was a good call on their part. Like, they were right. You know, it's, hard, it's a lot harder to admit that with someone you hate. <laughs> but if you respect the person, it's, it's a lot easier to be like, okay, they were right about that. Or maybe, maybe you... Maybe you throw in a caveat, okay, they may have been right. Like, you don't fully admit <laughs> that you were wrong. Some people just hate admitting they're wrong so much that they won't do it. But, but, but it's a lot more likely to come when the person you're admitting <laughs> that to is someone you respect, especially since you're not saying it to their face. You're admitting it to your friends, you know? <laughs> Another uh, maybe a more positive angle to look at that too is that you might be more gung-ho about a decision that maybe you're on a fence about if you respect the person that made it, yes. right? You win people over more easily if it's close or... Uh... They might change your mind. Yeah, they might actually... You might, right. like, you might respect them enough that their point flips your opinion entirely, which is... Yeah. That's hard to do. <laughs> so another reason for Arlen to just have praised Baylor so much, this is kind of an under-the-radar thing. Look, 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 you know what happens at a joust. You lose a joust, you lose your stuff. They get your arms and armor. Baylor is like, nah, you can keep your stuff. You have it back. I'm the crown prince. I've got all the suits of armor and coin I need. <laughs> Just have it be enough. You got this far. Take that. You know, so that would be something that Arlen would have probably brought up. One of many things he praised Baylor over. And other people too, by the way. Yeah. 
Other people would have been aware he did that for Arlen. Arlen's probably not the only one he did that for. It would have added more and more to his his, his clout, his honor, his generosity or his persona. Yeah, you know? like yeah, it's like a snowball effect. This is the more good things, the more these good things pile on, and the more you expect more good things. Well, yeah, like the more unknowns you frame positively, because all the things you do know are so positive. It just stands to reason that the other things I don't know about this person are also good. Yeah. And it would help it come from different angles too, because probably other lords, other people, the wealthy lords that might be in court with Baylor, they might not know or care if you let some knight have his armor back. But all the knights would know, all the yeah. squires would know, all the hedge knights, all the all the commoners, all the people running a food booth, whatever. He would get, you know, appreciation from the common people. Yeah, like the snail knight for sure would know. He's like, well, uh, that guy, he goes to every yeah. tournament, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, Baylor always gives the armor back. You know, he never takes the ransoms. That Yeah, that would spread. And that's an interesting thing. And this was brought up my next point, which is it's interesting that he was still jousting while he was handed the king. It's not, we, it's not like unheard of, but it's a little unusual. Nina says it's a really good way to continue to undermine the idea that Damon Blackfire's faction was the heart and soul of chivalry. This guy constantly reminding people of what a good guy he is and how capable he is. He's like, he keeps winning and he keeps giving the stuff back. It's a constant yeah. reminder of yeah. that. Yeah, that's, that's a really good way to just keep that going. Like people won't forget what a good man this is. And he wasn't, but he didn't show up to joust at Ashford Meadow. So maybe he... he he had maybe retired from it by that point because we don't know when this thing with Sir Arlen was. It may have been 20 years prior to the hedge night. It was, we have no idea. Yeah. All we know is it had to have been before Dunk was born because <laughs> it was before Dunk was born because Dunk, you know, Arlen's dead now and all that. All right. So our last section is the actual hedge night. The, the only time we really get to see Baylor up close. And this is something that we, that sets him apart as well not just his look, not just his character. We've seen Egg, we've seen Darren the Drunkard, we've seen Arian, Makar, Eamon as well, although Eamon we see in A Song of Ice and Fire, not these older stories that we, we probably will at some point, and Bloodraven. We've seen all those characters in the three Hedge Knight novels, or the three Sworn Knight of Seven Kingdoms novels. We never see Bittersteel, we never see Damon Blackfire, we never see Shiera, we never see Fireball, Daron the Second, Aegon the Fourth, Elena, Dana, Reyna, Baylor is not only on screen, he's on screen quite a bit. More than any of those listed, except Egg. Egg's the only one of those guys that's on screen more than Baylor. And even though Baylor's only in this one story. I mean, obviously Dunk is on more, but he's not a Targaryen. Only Maester Aemon maybe is more because he's in A Song of Ice and Fire, but that's much later and detached from this timeline. So this is our best source for his personality. It really shows why he's so chivalrous. I mean, he poor displays it front and center. But he's also clever, almost underhanded. Like he does sneaky things, which I think that's cool. I really like that because he uses his, he uses underhanded tricky things, but for good, right? He uses it to, to win in a trial that he thinks he's on the right side of. Like it's the just side that he's championing. And I wonder if he just, he really wanted to beat Arian because Arian sucks. And he's like, I want to sit this kid back, you know? <laughs> it's like, Arian sucks. We need to teach this kid a lesson. I need to teach my brother's son this is a good way to do it. I can't like tell him what to do, but if I can embarrass him in front of a lot of people, like he's doing it, he says he's doing it to be, because it's deserved, it's justice, it's all this. And I believe that, but there's also the chance to knock Arian down a peg who really needs that. He's super arrogant, right? And I can see Baylor seeing that, perceiving this as a way to do that in a way that might not otherwise be available to him. 
you can have, I don't know, say true, genuine, positive goals for a decision that also have some benefits to you, incidentally, yeah. you know, yeah. or some, then that's maybe even more cynical than what we're describing this decision with, you know, trying to teach Arian a lesson also. And so, with the, and with the trick with the lances, he says, let's use tournament lances because they're longer and we can hit our, our, hit them before they hit us. It's dangerous. And, and the laugh, laughing storm's like, is that chivalrous, my lord? And he's like, the gods will let us know. Mm-hmm. I guess they, maybe they did, but. <laughs> That's one of my favorite lines in yeah, the whole so good, right? <laughs> works of George Martin, yeah. And he, not that I don't think Baylor was good. Obviously, I've been it's like going on and on, like this whole episode, I've been talking about how good he was, but I appreciate he's not a goody two shoes. Like he's, he's virtuous, but he's not like, oh, we can't do anything remotely underhanded. No, we can do underhanded things if it's in the cause of good. So yeah, he, he's a little willing to get his hands dirty. He just, he's a little careful about when he does it, who he tells, how public it is. I mean, he accepted Dunk. He's like, I accept you as a knight. Like he took him at his word as well. Like you can enter the lists. I vouch for you, right? When no one else would. And there's no proof you were knighted, but I believe I know who your master was. He seemed like a good guy. He, you know, I... He's representing what a knight should be. Yes. And that's more important to Baylor and maybe should be more important to everyone than the details of some ceremony. You yeah. Know? Nina suggests it's quite possible that, you know, Makar offers to take Dunk on after the tourney because his son is like really into him. And he's like, you quitted yourself well. My son wants you to be his, his teeter, his teeter, his teacher. And I was trying to combine the word tutor and teacher there. But if Baylor hadn't died, maybe he would have brought Dunk on. He's like, you are a good man. You're a good knight. You're the kind of knight I want at my side. You and I have the same virtues. I think that's an entirely possible. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm although more likely he would have stuck with Egg and Egg would stick with his father. But still, Baylor would have offered, I think, to bring him in and like, you're, you're a good guy. We could use more men like you. So as of this recording, it's June 2023. It's still a long way away from HBO's version of The Hedge Knight, but this has a lot of potential to jerk some peers, especially Baylor's part of the story, right? I mean, seriously. And one thing nice about Baylor is there probably won't be any complaint about Targaryen wigs in his case, because <laughs> people always <laughs> complain about the wigs. Although Arian and Makar, they'll, they'll be able to focus on those two instead. <laughs> those guys will be there. Not Egg, though. No wig for him. <laughs> Maybe a bald cap. No, they'll shave his head. <laughs> the actor who plays Baylor can use his real hair, is, is my point. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> they might still give him a wig anyway, but you never know. Yeah, you really do never know. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, just look at Jace Valarian and his awful, awful wig. Yeah, that is not his real hair. Yeah, so. He has great hair. But it looks more real because it's brown. Like, you're like, yeah, that yeah, yeah. clearly can't be your real hair. It looks silvery like that. You know? Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's have Baylor's epitaph, such that it is well-written and glorious. Baylor of House Targaryen, Prince of Dragonstone, Hand of the King, Protector of the Realm, and heir apparent to the Iron Throne of the Seven Kings of Westeros, went to the fire in the yard of Ashford Castle on the north bank of River Cockleswent. Other great houses might choose to bury their dead in the dark earth or sink them in the cold green sea. But the Targaryens were the blood of the dragon and their ends were writ in flame. He had been the finest knight of his age and some argued that he should have gone to face the dark clad in mail and plate, a sword in his hand. In the end, though, 
his royal father's wishes prevailed, and Daron too had a peaceable nature. Had a peaceable nature. When Dunk shuffled past Baylor's beer, the prince wore a black velvet tunic with the three-headed dragon picked out in scarlet thread upon his breast. Around his throat was a heavy gold chain. His sword was sheathed by his side, but he did wear a helm, a thin golden helm with an open visor so men could see his face. Yeah, that's a great quote. Great epitaph. Few characters have epitaphs like that in A Song of Ice and Fire because we don't see their funerals. They die in battle and stuff happens off screen or whatever. You know, even Ned Stark didn't get something like that, although he would have been a candidate to deserve something like that. There's a few people that remind me of Baylor Rhaenys, daughter of Elia and Rhaegar, who was also murdered well before her time, well before Baylor's time as well, but, well, Baylor's age, I mean, well, after Baylor's time, because she also looked Dornish. She was a Targaryen princess who looked more Dornish and had a one of each in terms of their parents, Elia and Rhaegar. And she loved cats. Maybe Baylor loved cats too. Maybe they had that in common as well. Not to, of course. Of course. Yeah, why, Maybe? What do you mean? Maybe, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Not to mention Rhaegar himself. There's parallels there. Rhaegar looked Targaryen, but he was considered like a great prince. A lot of people liked him. People looked forward to him ruling. And he was also, you know, he's not Dornish himself, but he had Dornish marriage. So maybe he's, he's a little more, maybe in some ways, a little more similar to Daron, Baylor's father, but in a lot of ways, similar to Baylor himself. A couple of real life comparisons. Edward the Black Prince, who was the eldest son of a king who's, I'm forgetting who his father was. Which father was that? Anyway, someone remind me in the chat there. He was, this, he was a much, the, the son of a long reigning king and was very admired himself. He was very looked for. People really looked forward to Edward the Black Prince ruling. Despite his name, he was well regarded. <laughs> it's like, whoa, that guy sounds dangerous. Now, he was a great warrior. That was part of why he had that nickname. He was also considered the model of chivalry. He ha- adapted the badge of the Prince of Wales. Have your answer. Edward III. Edward III, that's right. Okay, I was like, Edward? I couldn't remember the number. <laughs> I thought it was the first or the fourth, so I was way off. Well, off by one or two. <laughs> and he also died right before his father. So it was kind of like, which is exactly what happened with Baylor. Baylor died like months before, before Daron II. A lot of parallels there. As we discussed in our Dunkin' Egg series, in the Hedge Knight, we discussed how Baylor also has a lot in common with JFK who died when George was around 15. So it would have been a very important living in a Roman Catholic household in New England, where JFK would have been very popular. His death was untimely and similar entry wound back of the head, whereas where they were both. So we talk about that in a little more detail in the Hedge Knight series. So I recommend that as well, amongst other episodes that relate to this one. His legacy is substantial, in part because he died with so much promise. And that's part of what makes it so painful. That's a promise that can never be fulfilled. The what-if questions will never be answered, and you can only wonder at what might have been. This quote really speaks to that. Perhaps he should have hated Makar, but instead he felt a queer sympathy for the man. You swung the mace, my lord, but it was for me Prince Baylor died, so I killed him too, as much as you. Yes, the prince admitted. You'll hear them whisper as well. The king is old. When he dies, Valar will climb the Iron Throne in place of his father. Each time a battle is lost or a crop fails, the fools will say, Baylor would not have let it happen. But the Hedge Knight killed him. Dunk could see the truth in that. And indeed, though Valar never climbed the throne, 
the realm did suffer many woes. The great spring sickness, a drought, and from what we know, many did wonder or exclaim their lament at Baylor's death, especially during some of those things. And that's the problem with if so-and-so hadn't died, you can never prove it, right? It's the same kind of, the same thing I was just saying entering the section where that promise can never be known, those questions can never be answered, you don't know. You just don't know. It would have been better. It probably would have. He probably would have been a good king, but who knows? He might have been the best king Westeros ever saw. But how could he, but he can't stop the drought, probably. Like, he couldn't have stopped the Great Spring Sickness. Maybe he would have managed it a little better. Maybe the casualties would have been reduced by 5 or 10% under his reign. But maybe he would have just died against Dagon Greyjoy's reavers instead of dying of a tournament mishap. It's, you know, there's this, the, the what if just launches so many other what ifs. But I still find it compelling. It's still a worthy question, but we have to acknowledge how unanswerable it is. But it's still also relevant to see just how big a question it was in Westeros. We can say that, but in Westeros at the time, the laments, the tears would have been big and many and, and would have continued. Some would have seen his death as will of the gods, though, maybe as finally. The gods have their will, you know, like the gods will show us if this is chivalrous or not, you know. <laughs> Maybe finally Damon's revenge from beyond the grave. Piera and Valar's twin sons were stillborn. I forgot to mention that. And that may have been further judgment of the gods as seen by the commons. And then, of course, the spring sickness killing Daron and Valar and Mataris, but sparing Piera somehow, so... It does seem very specific. The, the disease did hit an awful lot of Targaryens, a lot of crucial Targaryens. So if you're a Blackfire loyalist who blamed the Targaryens for slaying Daemon, doing against the will of the gods with that evil blood raven using sorcery and using things outside of the purview of the Seven, no wonder they're getting their just desserts now. Pretty easy to see how superstitious people could frame that to their, within their own worldview. I mean, four more Blackfire rebellions did occur later, after all. Whether the gods or not had anything to do with it, the death of Baylor did open the door for that. Like, if he had survived, I wonder, like, does the second Blackfire Rebellion even get started if Baylor breaks Pierre is still hand to the king? I don't know. Maybe not. They might have been more wary of that. They still tried it under Bloodraven, and he's obviously capable and, and formidable, so it quite possibly still would have gone the same way. Now, Makar wasn't just marked as a kinslayer, but as a kinslayer of such a beloved figure. It's one thing to kill, like, your evil twin brother or your evil brother, you know, especially via accident, but this was just such a beloved figure. And yeah, as that quote said, Makar knew he would carry it for the rest of his life and realized that so would Dunk. Now, I'm, I'm a little less concerned with Makar at the moment, but when we talk about Makar, we'll, we'll wonder about that and wonder, like, how did that weigh on him throughout his life? And how often did he think of Baylor? Dunk will be seeing in his head for sure in future stories. So we may never get a lot, as much in, more insight on Makar, but Dunk, we will. How motivating will it be for him in the future to do right by the realm because he was left alive? He, he thinks about that. He's like, well, maybe there will be a day when the realm needs me for something. Maybe that's why Baylor is dead and I'm alive, you know? And he want, but he wants to be worthy of that. He wants, to, he wants that to come true. He wants for that outcome to be correct. He doesn't want to have cost the realm such a great person for no good reason at all. He's like, just so I could live? That, that's empty for him. He's like, no, it has to be for some greater purpose. Nina writes, him saving baby, baby Rhaegar at Summerhall? <laughs> yeah. Well, he was probably mm -hmm. thinking about it then, although that might have just as easily been like, I'm trying to save a baby from the fire. That, Targaryens and princes may not have entered in it that much, but it very likely would have. 
I mean, like during his whole career, like his whole life. How often is he thinking of Baylor? I was like, well, I should do right here to make up for Baylor, you know, Baylor's death. If Baylor was here, I, I like I'm the reason he's dead. I should carry his and, that chivalry forward. And if he's living his whole life that way, of course, some of the things he does are going to be, you know, minor acts of kindness at a tournaments. But some of them are going to be save the prince. You know, he's just if he's always trying to do these grand and generous and brave things. Nina says he needs, he's it, trying to earn it, which I think that's the right. He's trying to earn that. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever the, the gods did this, he's trying to live up to it, earn it. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. And one of the last lines in the hedge nut is Dunk reminding Makar, quote, just before Prince Baylor died, I swore to be his man. Eh? Eh? He's not going to forget the promise he made to a dying <laughs> noble chivalrous prince, the greatest knight in the realm, the one that he's going to, well, he's going to be the greatest knight in the realm at some point. So he's going to, Think of that. He's like, oh, I, I took, I got this title, a title that Baylor once used to held. It was going to make him really proud and maybe a little unworthy of it. Be like, have I lived up to this? I got to keep, keep earning this. I got to, I can't rest on my laurels. He also says he can't look at the scar he got from Arian's lance without thinking of Baylor. That scar's not going anywhere, y'all. He'll have that scar the rest of his life. Every time he looks out to see that scar, he's going to see Baylor. He's going to think about it and think of what a great man he was and how he's there instead of him. And remember, maybe the finest moment. What happens? Dunk is standing before the crowd, trying to get that seventh person to join him for the trial by combat. If he doesn't get a seventh person, he's judged guilty. What does he say? In all caps, in front of that crowd, are there no true knights among you? Powerful moment, right? Baylor emerges from the mist. He didn't answer the call then. He had already answered it. He was already dressed. He didn't just instantly put his armor on in three seconds. No, he had already answered that call. He was already doing what a true knight should do. Before Dunk asked for it, he just made his entrance in a very, <laughs> he understands how to make an entrance. Like this guy, you know, he's like, well, we may as well have a little uh, fanfare with it. Like I know I'll maximize this moment. <laughs> <laughs> Without that moment, there's no Dunk living his life by these values, right? It doesn't come. It never happens. So that means there's no Brienne either, by the way. So like this moment, Baylor birthed Dunk, birthed Brienne and whatever other children Dunk has out there or descendants. All those kids. Baylor is their patron. <laughs> he's their true, he's their uncle. He's their godfather. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Guilty Undertaker says, I could see people seeing the stillbirth of Valar's and Kiera's twin sons as divine retribution for the death of Damon Blackfire's sons on record. Yes, absolutely. Nina said a similar thing. Totally see that. Yeah, like they, there are people who would spin it that way. And people would seize on that because it wouldn't have occurred to them necessarily. But once, once some street preacher points it out, they're like, that, that's a good point right there. Headcanon, you know, whatever. Headcanon, real world headcanon for what the gods think. What is that? Mm -hmm. Karma canon, God canon, <laughs> heaven canon. I don't know. <laughs> heaven canon. That's pretty close to headcanon. Next week, we have the episode on Pentos. It beat out in the vote on Patreon. Asha Greyjoy, a bestiary episode, and House Ironwood. So it was a pretty well-contested Pentos poll. beat out Asha Greyjoy? I know. I was a little surprised at that. <laughs> it was close. It was close. They got, Pentos only got like 32% of the vote. So, yeah, it wasn't, a, it wasn't quite as overwhelming as Baylor's win. If that result outraged you, well, then... You should join Patreon and vote. That is, <laughs> I right. think, the argument there. If you don't like the outcome of our polls, then you should vote. I think only five. I think it would have only taken about five or six votes to change 
the poll to a different result. So you, Asha Greyjoy Stan, that I'm talking to in the audience, you could have signed up six <laughs> times over, buy a membership for yourself <laughs> and five friends, and right. vote in the Asha block. The polls usually have a theme. Uh, uh, there's no theme there, though. I was just like, let's do four random topics and un- completely unconnected to each other. <laughs> and that's what we did. Yeah. So the trivia question, the, answer, the, uh, the, the question was about Baylor Black Tide, Ironborn Lord and Worshipper of the Seven cut into that many pieces by Euron. What is the name of his ship? The answer is Night Flyer. Mel- multiple people got that one. Nice. As you would guess, people were able to guess it because, well, they know Germ's other works and Night Flyer was a well-known one because it was adapted to the screen. Yes. Was indeed adapted for the screen. Only went one season and apparently wasn't very much like the book. The short story is really good. I love George's like cosmic world building is really on display. I highly recommend Night Flyer or Night Flyers. Yeah. Plural in the short story. The ship is is just a singular. But yeah, I wonder whose ship that is now because it's no longer Baylor Blacktide. It's probably his son. (laughs) But maybe not. Other episodes that you might want to peruse or re-listen to, if you've heard them before, that were related to topics we brought up here. Nymeria, of course, was brought up. The Redgrass Field episode in particular, but all the other Blackfire Rebellion episodes. Daron the second would be a good one. Summer Hall, of course, came up here. We talk about Summer Hall in greater detail. It's a double episode. Krieg and Stark is a very recent episode that, that comes up in relation to Dorne and the rebellions there. I would wondered if the North would care about Dorne joining the realm. Well, they might because the war with Dorne is where Cregan's heir was killed. So they might have some bad feeling over that too. Like we tried to conquer it. You killed my son and now we're just bringing them into the realm with better law, laws that favor them over us. They might not care. Dorne's so far away, but that might bother them quite a bit. Some Northerners more than others. Cregan was probably still alive when this happened too. Very old guy, but still around most likely. I, in my mind, I'd like to think that, you know, there, there's going to be a lot of different people, with a lot of different opinions. But the couple of wise people who are most in charge, I hope they would recognize this is just like a bargaining chip. We don't really care, but we're going to we're going to get what we can out of this. We have some justifiable grievances. Good point. Good point. Yeah. Like false outrage to, to gain something out of it. You can see the yeah. opportunity to get a concession out of the Iron Throne over this grievance. That's a good point. That's how a lot of how politics works, too. Yes. Also, the episode on Dare on the First, and of course, Aim in the Dragon Knight. Those were both referred to here and are relevant, so you might want to check those out if you haven't already. Thank you for attending live if you did. Thank you for listening later if you're catching the edited version. And if you're not listening, then screw you, and I'm safe to say that because you're not listening. <laughs> you don't know. What if I they're watching? Oh my gosh, say <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, they're also listening if they're watching. If they're watching and not listening, they didn't hear you say that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> also, I'm that's safe. weird. Why would you watch and not listen? <laughs> <laughs> we're just really to see our faces. We're not, I don't think we're handsome enough to deserve it. You're here for the t shirts. <laughs> that's right. My <laughs> Dragonstone shirts. Hmm. And you're Denver. D- Denver Dragonstone. Hmm. <laughs> What's your shirt, Shea? Dragonstone Nuggets. Oh, I'm wearing a Tom Anderson shirt from King of... I'm um, not King of Love and Beavis and Butthead. That's appropriate because of Sir Arlen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's Tom Anderson. Yeah, anyways. Yeah, Arlen, Harlan. But yeah, it's like a kind of trippy shirt with him. I wish I could show y'all. But yeah, it's got his face on it three times. I got it at San Diego Comic. <laughs> yeah, I think Arlen, Texas and Arlen... 
Sir Arlen are spelled differently. One's A-N and one's E-N, but I'm not sure about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Either way, whatever. It's close enough. They're, they're different. They are different. King of the hill. And the hill, besides, the Arlen Bastards. isn't even Arlen Mealy. It should be Harlot Town. As yeah. we all know, that's the correct real name of, of Arlen, Texas. <laughs> Harlot Town. <laughs> they, they got rid of that influence. Yeah. Or they tried to, but we know better. All right, folks. Thanks again. Thanks to Nina for her invaluable notes. A lot of great takes. And that clarification on Henry VIII, of course. <laughs> Thanks to Joey, Jesse, and Bran for the help with our theme music and our video intros and our music outro as well. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for our also other video intro and the maps you see on display in many episodes of History of Westeros podcast. Check out claradox.de, that's with a K, to shop Michael's stuff. Lots of great things over there. You can get maps and other things. And thanks to our engineer. Shout out to him for our sound quality assistance. And I love shouting out him because his name is so good. Benjineer, yes. Mm-hmm. His name is Ben, and he is an engineer. <laughs> As you probably guessed. Or you've heard me explain that before. Either way, I'm telling you again. And we'll see you next time for more. You know what to do in the meantime. Valar, we read us. 